Good day, mate. 40 here. I found some shade and uh, listening to Anne Courtney here talking to John Tierney from the New York Times on why plastic is good for the planet. Have just blown me away. Um, I've always been against recycling because it's a waste of time um, and it's stupid. But something you brought up that I wanted you to start with is that the plastic was like the greatest medical invention since the polio vaccine. Right now, it started as a public health crusade. You know, the, the throwaway society was started by these public health crusaders about a century ago because, you know, people were, uh, were using reusable. So everything is in a constellation of competing values, almost everything. Right? This is one thing I love about Judaism's moral sophistication. So bravery is a value, but sometimes it is much more important to be smart, to to be calculating. Uh, sometimes it's really important to be fair. Other times it's really important to win. So it's not like there's, there's one moral value that's just, you know, always triumph, triumphant over all other moral values. So all moral values operate in a constellation of competing values. So plastic, all right, many benefits to plastic in public hygiene, public sanitation, drinking fountains. It was spreading tuberculosis. And so this great pioneer, Hugh Moore, invented the Dixie Cup. And this was this great public health event where they were mandating this. They were, you know, they had all these ads saying, you know, um, uh, you know, stop contagion. It was huge during the Spanish flu epidemic. That's when the really the throwaway stuff began because you weren't spreading germs this way. And, you know, there were the cup campaign. So is the anti-plastic movement, you know, primarily a movement motivated by environmentalism? Or is it just primarily another psycho manifestation of the desire to boss around other people right? is global warming something that requires a complete restructuring of our economies you know, giving giving big government you know, total control over so many different areas of our lives to ward off an imminent you know, climate catastrophe right or is that just another opportunity you know, for the left to use a putative emergency to take dictatorial powers and to wipe out political opposition and severely constrain human freedom. You know, and there was all this stuff going on, and it was just considered a miracle. And then later, you know, with with uh, you know cellophane and things, these were just miraculous things that preserved food, that um, that saved everybody time in Washington. It was, it was just amazing. And yet, suddenly, you know, this all became bad. You know, there were these great ads during World War II. That, uh, I think it was Campbell's or Lucky Strike, which show these Nazi prison camps with the Nazis looking enviously at the American POW and their cigarettes wrapped in cellophane because it kept the you know um, fresher. And there were these ads for, for grocery shoppers, but I before you buy it, you could actually see food. You know, that was keeping the food fresher. So, Elliot Blood, I'm about to return to California. Is there anything that I need to do to prepare spiritually, psychologically, socially, returning from, you know, bright blue, sunny, summery Sydney to, you know, California in the aftermath of these, these massive rains? And, Elliot, I hear that California has been traumatized by two mass shootings. So, you know, I hear California is grappling with two mass shootings. Now, I have a more skeptical view of human nature. I believe that people you know, are basically focused on themselves. And so I suspect the Californians, you know, the 40 million Californians, are not grappling a great deal with you know, these two shootings. Rather, I think people who know someone who was affected by the shootings, that they're grappling and traumatized. But I suspect that uh, for 40 million Californians, they have other... Right, they have other priorities right now.
but I'm reading in the news that California has been traumatized. So have we had a complete reordering of, of human psychology so that people start caring about things outside of themselves? Right. Can't be skeptical. Somehow I don't think the 40 million Ameri uh, Californians have been traumatized. Just as I sit down, you know, just as I find some shade to do a live stream, now we get the wind, right? I'm trying to do a high quality live stream and now we got wind through the leaves. Elliot Blatt says, I don't grapple, grapple, I wrestle and win. Well, it depends on the situation, Elliot, right? Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. No one's always a winner. No one's always a grappler. I assure you there will be some situations that you just lie down and take it, such as a colonoscopy. Have you had a good colonoscopy lately, Elliot? You strike me as a bloke who probably needs to go get a colonoscopy. And when it comes time for you to get your colonoscopy, I don't want you to grapple and win. I just want you to lie down and take it. It's for your own good, bro. It was this miracle thing. You know, Life Magazine had these, uh, you know, had this great um, spread. They staged this elaborate photo on the throwaway society that showed this family, this housewife and her husband and the kid, ecstatically throwing like hundreds of, of throwaway products up in the air. You know, there was all they somehow managed to capture it all in the air, and it was it saved you know like forty hours worth of cleaning this throwaway stuff. It was this great boon for people, and yes. suddenly, you know, then that became bad. Yes. I, I always think it's um, the inventions of males that are the true liberators of women, the vacuum cleaner. And, and the plastic, I was just talking to a friend of mine today in Los Angeles. Um, I, I don't have children, but he was talking about everybody's favorite subject, changing babies' diapers. And he was talking about how it's actually, it isn't gross because of these throwaway diapers. And they have like kitten, kitty litter in the lining of the diaper. And he said every once in a while he'd be at um, you know, a dinner party in L.A. with some. So Elliot says he likes to put on a leotard and wrestle with other men. No homo. And... Uh... That's the primary source of meaning for blokes, all right? It's wrestling and fighting and competing, right? It's uh, not primarily loving, right? Love will be an element of a healthy man's life, but our lives are primarily about competition, right? I know someone who works seven days a week, has done so for, for decades, and he loves it because at the end of every day, there's a scorecard. Men love objective scorecards, like knowing how much money you made. Right? Very pro-social thing, usually, if you're, what you're doing is, is legal and upstate. Men love that, that scorecard. Men love to compete, right? And uh, most men are not going to be content with a life that primarily revolves around just loving other people. Right? We're, we're hardwired to struggle and to fight and to compete. Now, you can fight through words, you can fight through, you know, more sophisticated means than your fists. Some enviro types, oh no, we don't want to do that. We get, we get, we use cloth diapers and we have them picked up every week and cleaned and brought back. Well, how's that for the environment? All these trucks driving around to pick up your laundry. <laughs> right, and what a great job for people to be doing cleaning your dirty, you know, diapers. That's really high quality. I mean, I'm glad people have jobs, but it's just, you know, I mean, that was something where the enviros had a campaign against that, and then people started actually looking into the environmental impact, and this was even before, you know, carbon emissions, that became a big deal, but how much water was involved, how much energy was involved, and they finally, even the Greens gave up and said, if you really look at it, it's hard to say that either one is better for the environment. And, and uh, the chat says the chat is dead, bro, that's because you're operating on a very primitive level, right? You're, you're you know, you're operating a level down, all right? What's what's going on is that there are all sorts of chats going on right now in people's brains, right? The more sophisticated conversation is is being conducted, 
at a much higher level than what you have access to. Right? So you're saying the chat is dead, but the real conversation is going on inside our heads as I you know, present these revolutionary perspectives on life that if taken seriously will completely change how you interact with others. Right? The, the real chat is the spiritual chat. It's a, it's a chat between you and the angels. Obviously, one is a lot better for humans. So. Yes, yes. I mean, I don't even care about the green impact, which you do get into. I had an argument with my contractor on whether um, the kitchen island should have a separate garbage can for recycling. And I'm arguing with him and one of the fancy ladies helping me with my house. And I just keep insisting to them. No, I promise you, I am never, ever going to use the recycling bin. Oh, it'll lower the resale value. Fine, I won't sell. <laughs> I don't want to sell the recycler anyway. <laughs> Gene aspect of it. I mean, I am I am a bit of a germaphobe. I think most normal people are. And and that had never even occurred to me. It just annoyed me that they want me to wash these things out and put them in different um I worked for a big law firm in New York when I first got out of law school and they had their separate, you know, paper and plastic. And then, you know, you'd work late at night and see the cleaning ladies come around and they dump them all into the same barrel. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, I mean, that's the cheapest thing to do with it. And, you know, the hygiene thing, you know, back, back when this started, they were doing, you know, there were these studies coming out where they would just count all the bacteria in these reusable things. And, and that's going on today. There have been studies with these tote bags, these plastic mm-hmm. tote bags yes. that people use for groceries. And they always find, you know, coliform bacteria, viruses on them. There have been cases of like soccer teams that got sick because they brought, you know, they, mm-hmm. the, the food with them on a trip and it was in one of these tote bags mm-hmm. and everybody got sick. And, you know, you're supposed to wash it, you know, every week or every time you use it, which nobody does. <laughs> and, and of course, I mean, these bags are so heavy and they use so much plastic, it costs so much energy to ship to make them, to transport them, that they're far worse for, you know, carbon emissions and, you know, and they're unhealthier and, you know, and, and who wants to, you know, you know, look around tote bags and the grocery, you know, store will give you this beautiful, incredibly efficient, environmentally friendly, thin plastic bag, it takes up no room in the landfills, it takes almost no energy to, uh, to use it, you know, and people just don't. Have you ever read John Tierney? It's continually coming out with these contrarian perspectives, right? It's hard to believe that he's being published by the, the New York Times. So how bad is the wind right now for the audio quality? Well, it's just so wasteful to throw it away. And you go, well, it's made of natural gas. It all came out of the land. Just, just put it back in the earth where it was. It's actually more stable now than it was before, you know, when it was natural gas or petroleum. So well, still- also people, I mean, I certainly do reuse them by lining the right. bathroom garbage can with them. Now I have to buy separate plastic bags for all of the garbages. Right, and they found that, you know, people buy thicker plastic bags for the garbage, so it's actually more carbon emissions. You know, there's a great study by Reason that, that looked at San Francisco, and... And they find, you know, that there are more sales of thicker plastic bags to replace them because people need something for their dogs. You know, they use those bags for their dogs and stuff. And they estimated that it, that it increased bag-related emissions by at least like 9%, maybe double them. You know, I mean, so you got- So the, the chat is calling for Christopher Cantwell interviews. So it's definitely highly entertaining, you know, getting the, these people living out on the edge. But is it really in your spiritual best interests? It really, is it really for the, for the good of America to bring on these people who are living on the edge like what if something that was said that you know might, might tip them or a vulnerable viewer over the edge isn't it more important to have a a nurturing kind of life-affirming show you know rather than bringing on all these edge lords i'm just asking questions bro i'm just asking questions so you got more carbon in the atmosphere while everyone's lugging around these inconvenient tote bags, and you know, and you're also getting tote bags shipped from China instead of ones that are made in the United States. It's just the whole thing is just insane. And um, also, compared to paper bags, I think you said that in the landfill, the paper bags or biodegradable bags, both of them, they they emit something something bad for humans or bad for the environment, whereas plastic just sits there. 
Right. It, I mean, it's perfectly stable. Doesn't do anything. I mean, there's methane that, as, as the you know paper bags decompose, they release methane, which is that was it. I mean, in, you know, in reality, landfills are capturing some of that. And actually, what really happens in landfills, people think, oh, I'm using this organic stuff that will decompose. It just sits there. It's basically entombed. And so, I think we've heard that like we're running out of landfill. Uh, we're, we're running out of places to put our garbage. I remember the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles had this front page story about, you know, one man's quest, he lived for a year in a room, you know, filled with his own garbage. So he was strongly incentivized to keep his garbage down to a minimum. So John Tierney says, we're never going to run out of landfill. It's not really a problem. Is this true? You know, they, they're the Fresh Kills landfill in New York. They, you know, there are garbologists who've gone in there, and they can read the New York Times from the 1930s. You know, it's just really, nothing really happens to it. And you may as well just put the plastic in there and let it, you know, send it back to Earth. You're completing closure. But, <laughs> you know, and these paper bags take up, like, I think, 12 times more room in the landfill than yes. in the plastic bags. And so, and they use four times more carbon emissions. It's just, I mean, it really is, it's, uh, I mean, the recycling thing, uh, a big reason for that is just this intuitive sense that we're running out of everything. We're running out of landfill space. And this, and I think it also appeals to the kind of hoarding instinct. You know, I've written about tightwads and spendthrifts. So they've done, you know, lots of studies of that. They're actually, I think, probably more tightwads and spendthrifts. So the idea of throwing anything away that we, you know, do it, it just has this visceral thing for, for people that way. And well, that's just, why I prefer the plastic, though. I, I'm, I'm part Scottish, so definitely on the tightwad side of things. But you can you can squish about 100 plastic bags into one drawer. The paper bags, you know, you pile up four of them. It's taking up the entire drawer space. Right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's so much more wasteful in so many ways, you know. I mean, the other thing about, about recycling, that there's English professor Jim... Why this wall of silence about the real issue that only Donald Trump has the courage to, to confront? Right? And this issue that you now have to flush the toilet like two or three times. Right? Remember those good old days, just like one flush of the toilet, like all the gunk would just be swept away, like the filth, the, the mess, you know, the decay, the feces, the, the dirt, the destruction, right? All the yucky stuff that was impurifying the toilet bowl would just be swept away with just one push of the button. And now you have to flush multiple times. I mean, I long for those days when just one one flush of the loo and all the, all the junk would just go away. I remember what it was like to take a shower in the old days when there was just so much you know, water that was just cascading down on your body, like every shower was a was a wholesome yet erotic experience. Uh. Jim Twitchell has written some really good books about consuming and you know, lead us into temptation is one of them. And he said that um, most of us like to think of ourselves, well, I'm not materialist. I don't need stuff. I don't care about that stuff. But then we look at our garbage, you know, and we realize we can't have a lot of stuff. And he goes, it's the lipstick on the collar of our love affair with consumption. And there's this feeling. So my first year in Los Angeles, so 1994-95, a lot of that time I lived out of my car. And so living out of my car, I was strongly incentivized to accumulate very few goods. And then from 1995 to 1998, I moved about 10 times. So again, strongly incentivized to keep my stuff to a minimum. All right. So you know, a lot of people who, who like to boast about how little stuff they have and how anti-materialist they have, they're just simply reacting to incentives. Like if you live in Los Angeles or New York City or you know any or Sydney, all right, you're, you're strongly incentivized to keep your stuff to a minimum. Right? So people in the big city, you know, your living room is the neighborhood coffee house or restaurant, right? You don't entertain that much because you just can't afford the space. That we can therefore, if we recycle it somehow, it's less. We're getting rid of the lipstick somehow. You know? <laughs> I mean, the other thing about the plastic 
is, um, and this, I was really interested to find out about this because I've been puzzling, you know, for like a couple decades on why do people care so much about this? Mm-hmm. And plastic stuff is so bizarre because it's so much better for everyone. It's, it's, there's so much better products. I mean, you're making people with disabilities use plastic straws instead of, you know, I mean, paper straws. Right. It's, so, it's so horrible. But there is this other just deep-seated human need to boss people around for the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And these... Yeah, there's a deep-seated human need to boss people around. So look at that bird is like doing battle with that you know plastic bag, and now this little girl is running over to rescue that predatory bird from the plastic bag. But if you're on the right, you understand hierarchy is normal and natural. So you recognize that some people have more power than other people, and the people with more power are going to boss around, boss around the people with with less power. But uh, the left you know, doesn't appreciate that kind of hierarchy. For them, they, they want, you know, rule by the educated, by what Tom Sowell would call the anointed. And uh, it's the more socially conscious people that they want, you know, bossing people around. Okay, why is this bird coming so close to me? Mate, don't you know who I am? What the hell? Why, why are you afraid of me? He's coming right up. Okay, who's the predator and who's the prey here? Where's the fear, mate? Where's the fear? I don't get it. And these sumptuary laws, and, um, the, 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 and I, there's a great book on this, and the, there were all these laws, they've been around for thousands of years, where the ruling classes would decree what products, and what foods, and what clothes people could use. And the ostensible purpose, and these really big in the late Middle Ages, you know, up until the Enlightenment, and the ostensible purpose was the same as today's Green Movement, we're trying to curb excess and waste. And, but they never succeeded. People, you know, they would ban anyone from using silk, except priests, they could do it, but no one else could wear it. So Judaism has essentially all sorts of sumptuary laws. So rabbis have had the power to limit how much people could spend on bar mitzvahs or on weddings or on funerals. And, you know, one, one purpose of this was to try to reduce jealousy. So apparently jealousy was a major issue behind one of those, you know, old Asian dude you know, opening fire. What the hell? He's coming right up to me. What the hell? This old Asian dude, 72-year-old dude, opened fire at two Asian dance places, you know, where it's all people over 50 who are dancing. Uh, and apparently he hadn't been invited to the party. But my, I can, I can identify with that feeling. But my therapist said that I should call my autobiography the the uninvited, because you know many of my most painful memories are not being invited to things. Boy, these these predatory birds don't have much fear, do they? Coming right up to me for instance. Uh, but people would just find another luxury product, you know, to somehow show their status. And, and they were incredibly elaborate, like, you know, no one below the rank of a countess could wear a dress with, with three silver stripes on it. And no- so when rabbis had the power to, you know, regulate consumption and, and uh, dress and, you know, money spent by Jews, they did it, right? The only reason that rabbis don't regulate this now is that uh, people don't listen to their rabbis as much as they did when rabbis exercised tremendous power. So yeah, people just love to boss around. And so, do you want to be ruled by, you know, left-wing, hyper-educated people? Or do you want to be ruled by rabbis? Or do you simply want to be ruled with people with the money and the power? Nobody could wear velvet hose unless you were a cavalier. And, and, and all these arcane rules, and I actually had people who did go around enforcing these things sometimes, but mostly I think they were just ignored. They were, and they never worked. And the mystery, a bunch of scholars did a big you know, symposium on this and published it, but why did they keep passing these laws that never achieved their purpose? And the real answer was because they did achieve their purpose of making the upper classes feel better. But, you know, they did, it, yes. marked, it marked the lower classes couldn't wear 
I still, you know, uh, uh, I still dress and you could. So this marks you off. And it, this sort of, and, the, and the, it was the clergy and the, you know, and the nobles who, who passed these laws. And, you know, Adam Smith railed against them when he kind of said, for people in the upper classes who are the most wasteful, profligate people in society to be telling everyone else to curb it, it's just, it's just the height of hypocrisy. You know, I, I mean, I love the, the Queen Elizabeth II. And, you know, Queen Elizabeth I was one of the ones who promised, you know, to do inordinate excess. She was, you know, demanding it. And you know, she banned plastic bottles and straws. At, you know, yes, at yes. Now, this is a woman with the, one of the biggest carbon footprints in the world. Right? She's like six massive residences, and she's banned, but she can feel virtuous. I ban plastic straws, so I'm doing my part. And, you know, and all these Well, I think today's sumptuary laws are, they're not, it's not just something that's stated. They're actually being enforced. You can't get plastic straws or plastic bags in New York. Whenever I'm going to California or New York from another state, half of my suitcase are, you know, plastic bags from the grocery store. Smuggling the men. I remember when didn't Dave Barry? He was he was talking about people smuggling in toilets from Canada after they put in the new low flow <laughs> restrictions. They have to do that. You know, I mean, California. It should be one of the most petty, gratuitous things. But it was the California legislature banned hotels from offering those little plastic bottles of shampoo. It's like what? What is it? Other than irritating people, it's just yes, yes. So. Well, in California, I, I... The point of that is that people get to feel righteous, right? People really like to feel righteous. People really want to feel heroic. Right, people really want to feel like they're making a difference, that they're part of something transcendent. So, after bare survival, this this desire for status and for a feeling of importance, a feeling like you've got a heroic role to play in the universe. Right, I think this is what what drives drives people. I shop at the Beverly Hills Bristol Farms and very fancy people there and they ask you when you're checking out paper or plastic. Um, I've, I've always walked to Bristol Farms. It's like five or six blocks away, but I'm in New York and nobody in LA walks. And, you know, I have some fancy Beverly Hills lady in front of me, oh, paper. And then we go out in the parking lot and she's getting in her Range Rover while I'm walking home having to carry all these things. Well, paper isn't going to cut it because I've walked, unlike you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you want something that actually holds paper bags. I mean, it's just, I, I never cease to be amazed at how this just continues with people, these obsessions. Yeah. Also, would you describe the doctor and the train? It just reading those stories about how people would drink out of a communal cup so right. grosses me out. Right. No, it was called the common cup. And and, and, and at drinking fountains, there would be this tin cup that was chained to the fountain you know, at a railroad station. And, and this doctor who started, you know, who started this campaign in Kansas, um, he, he saw he was on a train. And these, these tubercular guys, you know, guys with obvious tuberculosis are all just drinking. And, and, and then a family gets out of there drinking from the same cup and so oh. this, this, um, you know they had these great campaigns there was this character um, the Dixie Cups had they really were just wonderful ads uh, they had they, yeah. unfortunately back then they didn't have massive campaigns to reduce the stigma of having tuberculosis and there wasn't all this civil rights legislation to ensure that there'd be absolutely no discrimination against people with tuberculosis man what, what sad benighted times I mean, they would show things with, like during the Spanish uh, flu epidemic, they showed skeletons that now's no time for contagion, drink Dixie cups, you know. And they had a character named Phoebe Snow, who was totally dressed in white. And, and, and it was, let me see, actually, I think I actually have the thing somewhere here. Um, what did they say? Um, oh, yes, um, they would show her sitting on a railroad train, and it said, uh, um, what does it say? Uh, on railroad trips, no other lips have touched the cup that Phoebe sips. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> right, if you've got a daughter or a wife, I mean, you don't want, you know, a whole bunch of lips you know, touching the cup that you, your daughter or your wife then drinks out of. Ugh. So for, for traditionalists, right, contagion and filth and disorder, right, those, those are your, your greatest fears. And they had, 
they were right. I mean, why do you want to drink out of the same guy? You know, and they would also have these have these ads with these really skeevy looking guys lurking around, and you know, and, and, and a specter of death lurking around a drinking fountain. You know, these multiple you know mothers and children about to be killed by this. I mean, they were so effective. This guy he was interesting because he was a great guy for promoting um, fear, um, and he was the one who really helped start the population crisis. He wrote the original. He wrote an original pamphlet called The Population Bomb, and then he allowed Paul Ehrlich to use that title. And I think he, I think he started, um, or was the president of the Population Crisis Committee. So he was like a great guy at mastering fear and, and scaring people. Wait, he was the one who got people to drink out of paper cups. Yes, yes. He's, you know, and, he, and his ads just exploited. And I mean, that was a genuine fear. Then he, right. He was a great guy at marketing, at marketing fear. And, um, well, he and, may be the one exception to my um, position on environmentalists. I mean, it's more than, it's, they don't care about the environment, it's more of an anti-human movement. Um, on the plastic thing, I mean, forget the Dixie Cups and no plastic straws and having a communal cup again, that's all bad enough and gross enough, and the, the reusable grocery bags, that's gross. Um, in 2019, at least as the article I saw, National Geographic had an article, I'm sure you know who these people are, um, they're pushing like green health, and they want hospitals to stop using so much plastic. So you'll have your hysterectomy with a doctor, don't worry, we're going to reuse our plastic gloves, and we'll reuse that catheter. Can, can hospitals advertise that way so I can pick the one that's going to throw out the gross old bloody crusty plastic? <laughs> it's, it's just, I mean, COVID did, you know, put something of it down. Even Starbucks, you know, had to say you can't bring in your reusable modes. I mean, as it turned out, the, the particular fear about COVID was overstated. The, I mean, all the billions of dollars that were spent cleaning surveys, that turned out it didn't spread that way, you know. But, and the CDC told us, like, a year later, after everyone had spent, you know, spent the last year mopping everything down. But that did at least people realize that there's a risk from these things. And so now, I mean, now when Fresh Direct delivers my tote bags, they make no pretense of that. They don't want them back. You know, they just, yeah. uh, so, um, which is good. I mean, it's, it's a pain for everyone. I mean, nobody ever takes into account the time that, you know, that, yes. that, I mean, I said that, you know, probably probably hundreds of billions of dollars at a minimum were spent by governments dealing, you know, wasted on recycling. They, they just put the stuff in a landfill or burned it. It would have been a lot better and cleaner, really, you know, if it had incinerator. But the biggest thing, and I, when I read about the times for this, like in 1996, I hired a guy, this kid at Columbia to just do how much time, he, you know, it, it took to recycle. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he just kept track for a week on, on how long he spent rinsing his bottles and sorting his recyclables and taking them to the basement. And it was like only 10 minutes. But if you add that up, yes. he was getting so little material that if you added that up, and I did the calculation, th th these recyclables, there was like, th there were were like three thousand dollars worth of, of labor and other things are going into it. I mean, that, for that, you know, for a ton of it, for that you could buy a used car. Then you know, and then you have yes. useless hunk of, of material that the city then had to pay someone to get rid of. Right, and the city isn't paying me to do it. I feel like when you know your your TV goes down or your telephone, and you're on the phone with them, and they're telling you, okay, now crawl around the back of the TV. And I'm saying to them, now you're getting paid for this phone call. I'm not getting paid to crawl around the back of the TV. Just send somebody to fix my TV. Exactly. They're not paying me to clean the bottles and, and rinse them out and let them dry. No, you're getting paid for that. I'm not getting paid for that. Exactly. That's why we have a sanitation department. And you're not getting paid to read the regulations. I mean, they, you know, all the... Right. What, you know, nobody knows it. And why should they? Why should you... Spend so it's uh, January 25 in Australia. And tomorrow, January 26, is Australia Day. So there'll be a massive celebration there at uh, Sydney Opera House. Everyone's got the day off. Uh, is your pulse quickening at the thought of Australia Day? I can hear uh, musical rehearsals coming right now from Sydney Opera House. Excellent spend your spare time and to keep changing it you know i mean the composting thing is like the biggest waste of all i mean it's just it's so it's gross it's not it's completely uneconomical and we end up shipping the compost to places like you know there was one in delaware that new yorkers were sending their compost to and the neighbors there finally got it shut down because it was just all these odors defecating seagulls coming in it was just so gross got it shut down but you know meanwhile you know the Blasio and all these people are ordering people to compost it's just absurd there's a movement to turn you know dead people into composting 
that uh, it'd be good for the environment. And there's no market for it. I also wanted you to, well, um, as long as we're on that subject, um, I wanted to ask you about landfills, um, my favorite landfill shoreline in San Francisco where the Grateful Dead play. Um, there seems to be nothing wrong with dancing and having a concert on top of a landfill. So do we have any idea how many, I mean, you say it, this is obviously true, but I'm wondering if anybody's run the numbers on how much, how, how deep do the landfill fills go? Are, are there, do they ever leach anything? They seem not to a shoreline. Um, and how much room would you need for the rest of our garbage for 100 years? Well, you know, the old-fashioned landfills didn't have any linings or anything like that. And even so, they really haven't, you know, come up with any, you know, bad things that happened as a result. I mean, they're not the Superfund sites that the EPA has. You know, Love Canal was this industrial landfill. You know, I mean, they had these industrial chemicals. And even that, it didn't cause a problem until the, the local municipality built a school on it after the chemical company said, don't build anything here. <laughs> and even then, it didn't cause any, you know, I mean, there was no cancer. Or anything. I mean, that's like the worst case scenario. These, these, these municipal landfills are mostly filled with, like, newspaper, you know, harmless stuff that doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. So even if they're not lying, they haven't really caused problems. In theory, they could hurt the water, you know, water, but they haven't really reported them. But for the last, like, 30, 25 years, they've, had, they've been required to have these double linings of clay and to monitor them, and there's just no risk from them at all. And, you know, it, uh, um, and, I mean, the old landfills, you know, in, in the Great Gatsby, the, the Valley of Ashes, that, they were, that was all the waste of, you know, from furnaces, and that's where we now play the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. You know? Right, right. So, I mean, and that, that had none of the safeguards of today. So, you know, these landfills are safe, and they're great, you know, the local communities, I mean, I visited one in Virginia, where New York garbage goes, and I visited, it, and you can't even find it. I mean, it's in the woods. There's a lot, of, you know, it's really this rural place. I was trying to find it. I got lost, and I drove all the way around. I had no idea it was there, and, huh. finally, and finally I did, and I visited one guy who lives next to it. He's on a hill. You can see the land from there, and I asked him, how do you feel about this? And I I loved his line. He said, the way, I, the way I figure it is, they brought something to the party. And that landfill was the biggest property taxpayer in it. They had used the money. It was, it was like the poorest county in Virginia. had terrible schools, you know, high property taxes because they had no business at all. This came in. They had this brand new school that was so much better than any school in New York. They had computer. I mean, this was back in the 90s. They had computers in every phones in every classroom. They had a new performing arts center, all thanks to the landfill. You know, so it was great for them. Right. Yeah, they saw it. It was just off in the woods somewhere. And, you know, and, then, and, when, and when landfills are filled, they just cover them up and right. they off course are apart. I mean, I haven't been out to, to Fresh Kills, the famous one here in New York, but, but the stuff, the pictures I've seen, it looks like a beautiful, you know, nature preserve now, you know, the birds and, you know, out there. So, and I mean, that's the bizarre thing, the, the idea that we're somehow losing this. It just becomes part. Right. And as far as the stat about, about landfills, if you took all the garbage, uh, if you think of the United States, if you think of all the, the land that's already open now for grazing, you know, this right. is not land, not cities, you know, it's all land that's just open for grazing. If you think of that as a football field, all the garbage that we generate for the next thousand years would fit like inside about one inch long. I mean, it just doesn't take very much. Wow. Time. Okay, that's the kind of figure I was looking for. Yes. And then it just becomes, you know, a park, you know, or a golf course. Yes. So or shoreline a amphitheater for the Great yeah, Exactly. Or, or the U.S. Open tennis thing. It's right. Just, I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, the other thing that didn't shock me, but I did not know, is the plastic in the ocean. Can you say where that comes from? Yeah, well, it doesn't come from your plastic bottle unless you put it in the recycling bin. But <laughs> <Yes. laughs> uh, as long as you keep that off your kitchen island, you'll be you'll be helping flipper. I'll tell you. Um, I mean, environmental groups have, have done these stats, claiming that a lot of it comes from land-based sources, which really isn't true. An awful lot of it comes from ships, and there are things you know that we should be monitoring ships. You know, the fishing ships throw a lot of plastic stuff out, and that we should obviously stop that. You shouldn't let it. But the land-based stuff comes almost all from Asia, and the rest from other developing countries. And the way it gets there is that they have primitive waste processing facilities that allow a lot of the plastics to leak into rivers and they flow into the ocean. But then none of it comes from the United States originally or from, you know, developed countries. And one of the problems has been, you know, that, that foreign aid out of the third world used to really focus on helping them improve sanitation facilities. Because they really improved, you know, like with plastic. Right. With plastic and just with cleaner water, cleaner everything. And with the green movement, they have started. It's all this sustainable. Like, let them build. It's like let them eat windmills, you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and so instead of, you know, getting new state of the art, you know, sewage facilities and, and things.
things, you know, they're, they're wasting it on, on all these other things. And, 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 and so the worst thing about, or one of the worst things about the recycling movement is that when you put plastic in a recycling bin, the odds are it's probably just going to get thrown in the landfill the way the cleaning lady you did. But they do, man. So this is John Tierney speaking here. He's a columnist for the New York Times. So you'd think that if you were consistently wrong that uh, the left and academics and environmentalists and all these different sacred cows that he skewers, they'd be strongly incentivized right, to go after him and, and you know, say to the New York Times, oh, this is a really bad guy, you shouldn't employ this guy. But uh, he's been writing for the New York Times well over two decades. Is uh, probably pretty strong evidence that uh, he has good documentation for his claims, because otherwise his enemies on the left, these various sacred groups that he skewers, you'd think that they'd be much more effective in shutting him down. So John Tierney here speaking to Ann Coulter. And so there's no market in the U.S. for this stuff, but they ship it to these poor countries where labor is really cheap. There are people willing to, you know, to do this, this pretty horrible work of sorting recyclables. And it goes to these places, and a lot of it ends up getting, you know, some of it just gets burned in these open-air things. They're really toxic fumes. They use them in these cooking stoves. Or it just, you know, it goes to a facility, that, or they just dump it in rivers. So it ends up in the ocean. So if you put it in the recycling, then it ends up in the ocean. But if you put it in the garbage, it goes in a nice, safe landfill somewhere. It helps pay for schools in Virginia. <laughs> wow. So if you, you put the plastic in the recycling, it's more likely to end up in the ocean. But if you put it in the regular trash, it's uh, going to much more safely go to a landfill and be you know, less likely to impurify our vital oceans. Interesting. That is excellent. Um, could we do a few minutes on uh, your magnificent willpower book and also the power, what is it called, the power of bad? Bad, yes, yes. How the negativity effect rules us and how we can rule it. You know, we just saw the you know recent manifestation of that with, you know, Paul Ehrlich is a guy I've written about forever. I mean, I, I, mean, I, spent, I mean, I spent a couple of days with him out in uh, oh. a long time ago. And he's kind of a nice guy, but he just, it's unbelievable. Somebody could be so wrong for so long. And yet, you know, 60 Minutes just did this, um, you know, piece, you know, where he's making more doomsday predictions. Uh, and that's, in the power of that, we have a chapter called The Crisis Crisis. That I, that I, in my argument... Yeah, so you can be so wrong for so long, right, Paul Ehrlich, and still, you know, command, you know, massive positive media attention. So that which we put on a pedestal in society, that which we venerate, right, that which we elevate, right, not necessarily good or true. Right, people who know how to play the game, right, like Paul Ehrlich, they can be consistently wrong and they still have an honored place in our society. This is the worst problem in the world. It just, I mean, you saw COVID was the worst example of it, where you just have this industry, the merchants of bad, as I call them, that, that basically profit by scaring everyone. And media does it because it's the easiest way to get people clicks. And the point of the power of bad is that um, the negativity effect, which my co-author, Roy Baumeister, is what, is what he identifies as a great insight that in, in this landmark paper called Bad is Stronger Than Good. And people, economists had noticed that, you know, people care more about losses than gains. And there have been a few other things that psychologists had noticed that, you know, that a bad first impression can really kill so the media, right, its business model is largely about scaring people, right? If you hype a threat, if you tell people that, you know, it's unsafe to go outside or to get sunshine or to walk around without you know, this or that protective equipment, right, that's how you have an easy way to capture eyeballs, you know, by scaring people, you know, warning them that, you know, America's facing civil war that uh, our democracy is under threat. You know, that our 
our political institutions, our legal institutions, they're no longer robust. That, uh, you know, we've got this health threat and that health threat. And, right, that's, that's basically the business model for the mainstream media, right? It's far more negative than social media, right? So the mainstream media keeps you know, publishing articles and producing reports about how bad social media is. Social media is a far more positive, benign force in people's lives compared to the mainstream media. It's the mainstream media which has a fixation with doom because you know, telling, telling people that we're doomed compels attention, right? This idea that the war's coming to an end, right? That, that grabs people's attention. I kill you, but um, a good choice of person doesn't make that much difference. And but Roy scoured all the literature in in, uh, in economics and psychology, anthropology, sociology, and he found that this was always true. The bad is always stronger than good. The bad things just have a much bigger impact on us than good. And, and we have a thing called the rule of bad that that, um, that basically, I mean, it's a very rough guideline. It takes. I mean, this is so true in, in real life, right? Someone could do ten nice things for you, but if they do one bad thing, that's what you'll think about and remember. There are ten, you know, positive comments, right, and one negative comment. You'll probably focus much more on the negative comment. Makes them four good things to overcome one bad thing. You know? so, I mean, that's why you go to a party and people just say nice things to you all night, and then you go and thinking about the one, you know, gee, what's, you know, the one bad thing. But when you read a review of a book, uh, of your book, and all you can focus on is that one to be sure sentence. The book. <laughs> I'm, I'm luckily um, an outlier. Uh, <laughs> In this description, I, I I don't I kind of blow off criticism, but I really remember praise. <laughs> and also, one of your examples. It's kind of amazing. Ann Coulter is, you know, still going strong. I mean, remember when she was fired from National Review after her column, immediately after 9/11, and you thought that was the end of Ann Coulter, and this or that thing has come along, and you thought, oh, this is the end of Ann Coulter, but she's still doing her thing. She's incredibly resilient, you know, incredibly strong. She, she receives, you know, so much hatred and criticism and uh, she still sounds pretty perky and happy. <laughs> and I'm completely the reverse. I'm so excited when Amazon packages arrive two days early. I don't really mind if they're a day late. <laughs> no, that's very funny. That's really, I mean, it really, I mean, it you're unusual. It does really take, you know, take, um, it takes some effort for a lot of people to really focus on that because it's just, I mean, our brains are wired for obvious evolutionary reasons that the people who survive are the ones who pay more attention to, you know, avoiding poisonous berries than savoring the real thing. <laughs> so, yes, there is something to that. On the other hand, I'm very amenable to constructive criticism. I've noticed when I talk to my friends in LA, um, try to get them to read this column, read this column. Is this okay? Is this line okay? Is this real? Um, before they will give me any kind of suggestion, there's like. I think one thing she's hinting out there is that many of Ann Coulter's best jokes she gets from. Know, Hollywood comedy writers who can't use them, they just send them to Anne. It's like a paragraph of praise. And I realize they're used to dealing with actresses. And if you don't tell them they're pretty every minute, they'll burst out crying. And I have to explain to them, no, 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 I, I don't mind. I'm looking for I'm looking for criticism from my friends before the whole world sees it and says, that's a bad sentence. Yeah, well, well again, you're, you're a rare enlightened human being, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the book, in The Power of Bad, we talk about how the people are really bad at giving criticism. And, you know, there's this thing, the criticism sandwich, which um, was popularized by an executive, you know, decades ago, which is that when you evaluate someone, you start off with praise, then you sneak in the, the criticism, and then you have some more praise. Um, and it sounds kind of logical, but, but there's industry research that, you know, when you, the, the employees just aren't paying any attention during the praise. They're waiting for the criticism. <laughs> I mean, that's how I am. You know, when I notice an employer or someone important to me, 
giving me praise, but you know, I know that there's some criticism coming. I just want them to get past the praise, just hit the criticism. Come on, just get right to it. Okay, okay let's get to the bad part. So it all just, and they just forget the nice stuff and they walk up, all they can do is focus on the bad stuff. And then, meanwhile, if you start off with a little praise or just say, you know, basically reassure them they're not about to get fired, you know, so they don't know. <laughs> and if you do criticism first, their brain goes into high alert. They're just listening to everything. And then if you then put the praise on, they're more likely they're on such high alert, they're more likely to remember it. Actually. So oh. if, if you do have to, I mean, you should, you know, keep that rule of that four to one ratio in mind, give about four times more praise than criticism, I think. Because otherwise, for most for most mere mortals, they, 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 they need that. <laughs> I thought the most, well, one of the headlines out of um, the power of negativity or the power of that um, was that, I mean, you're totally right about legacy media. We, we saw it during COVID. Everybody who was trying to scare us with COVID was making money, getting money and fame by yeah. scaring us. So the, it wasn't the people who weren't going to work. It was the people on TV and students. Right. you got to look at incentives. So the incentives, you know, when you're in the news business or you're in the attention business, right, the incentives are hard to you know, emphasize the bad, emphasize that the world's coming to an end studios becoming famous and people tuning in and now you're a big star and you're still making money but performers and broadway actors and athletes no their lives have just been destroyed right, so they right. can play this little game in any event a good example of that um one, one thing is just like a throwaway line you say social media it is very positive compared to the legacy media which is mostly negative right because when people share stuff and when they look at like, uh, it's sharing new york times stories or just what's on social media people tend not to like send grisly pictures of massacres to their friends <laughs> because, that's because mass media and to attract a mass audience the easiest thing is because we all fear the same things so. right so that's the very opposite of what you know we're told in elite discourse right all the focus is on you know how bad social media is and how we need you know responsible organs of the mainstream media to try to balance out against you know, this onslaught of disinformation and catastrophizing that's, you know, apparently you know, omnipresent in social media. But social media is, you know, a far more happy, positive place than the New York Times and CNN and the Los Angeles Times and ABC News. Right? It's, the, it's the mainstream media that focuses on the, the bad news. Right? Social media tends to be a much happier sphere. So, you know, you can do that, but the stuff that, that gets us enthusiastic, you know, these are good interests kind of, these are much more varied, you know, some, somebody's a history buff, somebody's a philosophy buff, mm -hmm. and so that's much more niche stuff, but that's a great thing about social media, that you can have, you know, the Civil War buffs can have their own site, that, you know, the poetry lovers have here, so people do that, and people tend to share much more positive things with their um, friends, so in that sense, I think social media, and, and again, during COVID, I mean, the example there was, the only place to get straight information on COVID was from Twitter and from social media, but, I mean, you had to know the right places to go, like, mm -hmm. Website or City Journal, where I write on the hotel plug it. But that was, you know, it wasn't the legacy media that was just doing that. We're going to, every day, the networks had that Chiron with the, the latest COVID case count. Never any perspective about, oh, we had 200 deaths a day. Well, 5,000 people a day die in America, you know. <laughs> so, or I'm not sure what the figure is, but, but I mean, there was never any perspective at all. They're just out to scare you. Where you could actually get, you know, the skeptics were there on social media pointing out, you know, the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, the trying to put it in perspective. So, in that sense, I'm, I'm encouraged by the decline of the legacy media. I mean, social media does have its bad side, obviously, but, but I think compared with the, I mean, compared with the misinformation, that is spread by the right. and you know and it's believed so but also you're just always hearing people um, generally people working for the legacy media um talking about oh how destructive social media is it's calling causing all these teen suicides and this that and the other and that just you know goes into yeah and video yeah if you want to talk about how destructive the media is I think about the the steady you know drumbeat of you know bad news and you know attention grabbing video Action video is what you know, brings in the ratings for, for TV news. Right? TV news are far more destructive to 
people in general than social media. Video games cause suicides and scary movies and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's noticeable that all the old media people really want to scare parents about social media. <laughs> and you point out social media is more uplifting than the old media. I know, it's just, I mean, um, there's this thing that, I think um, I read about the book called The Frederick Wortham Effect, and he was this um, um, doctor who testified before Congress and wrote a best-selling book um, and for Reader's Digest in the 50s about the great deadly menace, the new social medium, the, or the new medium that was corrupting youth and creating juvenile delinquents, which was comic books. You know, that's what they, that's what they had, the comic book code, and all these comic books, you know, companies went out of business, and they had to start sanitizing them all. And they've been history, every new medium that comes along, it's always, you know, it's a new scourge of youth, video games, you know, whatever it is, you know, the telephone, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> So, and it's, you know, it's just the easiest way you've got to scare people. And, uh, you know, Lenore Skenazia Reason has done great stuff about that scaring them about kids being abducted, you know, that, that, that whole scare the kids. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. You pointed that out. And there were a few things that I think I had fallen for that, that you corrected me on. Um, one was, I don't know why. I mean, I guess I did think it was a more dangerous world um, from not locking up criminals and, and employing the death penalty more aggressively. Um, but, yeah, people are afraid of their kids getting abducted. Right. I mean, it all started with that kid in Brooklyn who was abducted in, I think, in the 80s, was it, or the 90s. Um, and, you know, it got all this publicity. And then there was a thing on the milk cartons where, you know, they said, here are all these missing kids. And, and, and they had these scary numbers about X thousand kids a year are missing. But most of them were just kids who were reported missing because, like, during a divorce case or a custody case, the father would come and take the kid, the mother would report him missing. Mm -hmm. And actual odds of a kid being abducted. Yeah, so America seems particularly prone to hysterias. I think much more so than Australia. I don't remember many hysterias from my time in Australia. Didn't spot many hysterias this time. So most people just want to have a good time with their family and friends here in Australia. But there's a much more moralistic, you know, kind of Puritan and apocalyptic end of the world streak in America. It's kind of the, the, the dark side of American enthusiasm. And so all these hysterias over, you know, missing children or you know, satanic child abuse, systemic police racism you know, against black men. Like there are all these hysterias that just seem to convulse uh, much of the nation. And you don't see this in England or France or, or Germany or, or Japan or Australia. Something uniquely American about these repeated moralistic panics and waves of hysteria. Getting killed by a stranger, they are more likely to be killed by lightning. I mean, it really is so rare that it happens. And I mean, you're probably right that it did. I mean, in some neighborhoods, it's worse. But on the other hand, I don't know how many criminals are going around abducting kids. Right, right, right. Um, so I don't, you know, I mean, there's obviously there's dangers from gun violence and things, but in some neighborhoods. But it's, I mean, these suburban kids who just can't walk home. And yep. I mean, Nora writes about this region, and, and she has a group called Like Grow. But these horror stories of mothers getting arrested because they let their kids walk two blocks home. And so you don't have nearly as much helicopter parenting in Australia. Now, kids can wander all around Sydney, right? They can take the bus all around Sydney. Uh, there's just much more freedom to roam in Australia. So you don't have, you know, the hovering parent nearly as much here because, you know, for one thing, Australia is a much safer place. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So it's really, it's just the selling fear, the merchants are bad, you know? Yeah, so spend more time on Twitter, more time on Facebook, and cut your cable line. Um, and one thing, and I think at some point I'd like to talk to you more about both of these books, but I thought the big takeaway from your willpower book, one that the line, or the point that shocked me the most, um, was that you say how well a student does in college um, is better predicted by tests of his willpower than intelligence tests. And that shocks me. Yeah, I don't believe that. I'm pretty sure that's distorted. 
determines basically everything in life. And I'm not that smart. You're way smarter than I am. I still think intelligence determines everything. So that willpower, that being even more predictive of college. IQ doesn't determine everything, but it has more predictive power, more explanatory power than you know any other social science tool of which I'm aware. College success is stunning. Well, I mean, college success, of course, is defined by grades. Sure. And, and you know, there's a lot of evidence, for instance, that uh, the girls will get better grades than boys. And part of it is that there are a lot of boys with learning disabilities. That's part of it. But, but it's also that boys just misbehave. Yes. Just some, a lot of teachers are prejudiced against boys. So, and, and there's a bunch of stuff showing that boys and girls are actually are, are equally confident in the second. Girls will get higher grades because they behave better. They, they you know, have oh. control with, 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 you know, would feature in that, too. But, I mean, just doing your homework. And, you know, right. I mean, there are a lot of smart people that just don't do the homework, that don't, you know, that don't study for the exam, the Paul nighters, and that stuff really does affect. I mean, intelligence is, and, and, and the college boards are, are a better predictor of college performance than grades are. You know, um, I oh, good. I feel much better now. Yeah, they're bad. <laughs> now my, my view of the world has been corrected. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so college boards and SATs, all right, objective testing, yeah, is much better predictive of uh, college performance than, you know, more subjective grades. Yeah, because with objective testing, you're going to get much closer to to the G factor, to someone's general level of intelligence. One thing that um, you'll tell me isn't a contradiction, um, but I thought it was maybe a little bit of a contradiction, and that is on one hand, you have exercises for practicing your self-control, like brushing your teeth with a, the alternate hand or standing on one foot or something, but you also say that willpower can be depleted, so you don't want to waste your willpower, I'd say, doing something stupid like brushing your teeth with the wrong hand. I want to save up for the big stuff. Well, well that would be the equivalent of... Uh... I mean, the analogy would be that you lift weights and you're using enough energy and strength to do that today, but then tomorrow you're stronger as a result. So, I mean, part of our, I mean, willpower does get depleted, and if you have a lot of stuff to do today, you should, I mean, you know, don't do any exercises, just save it for that. Oh, but I see. You stand on one foot on the days you haven't had to. Right, and right. Exercise your willpower. If, if you hold that toothbrush at night, you don't really need willpower to go to sleep. So you're, you're... <laughs> yeah, you really don't want to have to be exercising extraordinary amounts of willpower. You want to be retraining yourself so that your own inclinations more and more align with what is in your best interest because the amount of willpower we have is so small and it's such a weak read right? it dissipates and uh, sometimes it entirely disappears and, and people that, uh, you know, and I mean, you know, and again, the, you know, the people who really have great self-control in these studies, when well, they monitor them to the day, with the, one of the surprising findings, although it makes sense in retrospect, is that it's not that they actually they have this incredibly strong willpower that, that just enables them to overcome everything. They structure their lives so they don't have to use willpower. They don't yes. a gallon of ice cream and do Yeah. Yeah, successful people structure their lives so they don't have to use willpower. So I was at a, you know, hangout with some blokes the other day. And uh, pretty much all of us were snacking on you know, junk food there that was generously laid out before us. But you know, one bloke he didn't touch anything. In the, in, in the freezer, so you don't have to use any willpower, to, you know, to resist it. And I one thing about exercise, that I, you know, I've always loved doing sports because you're kind of outsourcing instead of making myself go running. Yes. You have to show up to meet someone else. You're, you're outsourcing willpower, basically. <laughs> so in that sense, it's been, that's one way to avoid depleting it. So. Yes, and I think that's also the reason, the averting your eyes thing, um, is, is part of the reason for another great finding in that book, that diets don't work. 
<laughs> I think that's the name of a chapter. Diets don't work. Um, because everyone I've ever met who's on a diet, they're obsessed with food. They're thinking about food all the time. How many calories in this? How many calories in that? Should it be low carb? Should it be high fat? Blah, 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 blah. Um, if you just don't think about it, you won't. it's like staring at the at the uh, marshmallow, the little kids. Don't eat the marshmallow. And someone just sit and stare at it. That isn't a good way to test your willpower. <laughs> you, know, that's, it, it, you know, people always think of dieting. That's the first thing they think of when they think about willpower and self-control. And it's actually the hardest, it's probably the hardest thing that you, know, that you can do because one of the findings in, in willpower in the book is that uh, when you're hungry, when you don't have enough sugar, and, and they find that if they, you just give somebody some sugar, basically, you know, some quick energy, they have more willpower because it, it's, you know, it's ego depletion. It gets depleted by, by by not having glucose. So when you're dieting, you know, you don't have enough, you know, basically nutrients in you to exercise. So you're starving yourself, and you're, you've depleted your willpower while you're trying to exercise. It. So that's why it's really one of the things that's hardest to do. You know, that, that it's, you know, because it's just you're fighting your own body when you do it. Right. Right. Well, I'm I'm suffering a little. Um... So yeah, that's uh, John Tierney talking with Ann Coulter. And uh, he's a New York Times columnist, contrarian. Ego depletion right now. And I can... Just a uh, constantly interesting blog. So I've been listening to a lot of Richard Hanina. So he's got a very thoughtful podcast with uh, a lot of academics. And... Uh, Let's have a look at uh, some of his his recent shows. Did one by this Harvard evolutionary teacher. Why is the West special? My first and only marshmallows were at campfire, so I liked them. Anyone in Australia still eating Vegemite? Yeah, Vegemite's still pretty uh, popular. The blonde Canadian woman is trying to be Anne Quarter now. Who's that? I exercise my willpower at night so I can. What is this on? John Tierney talked to Ann Quarter on a Substack. Luke takes the good talking clips from the news networks, adds his pundit points and guests sometimes, unless he's in Australia. America spread this far and wide. Big Pharma, it's like one commercial in five. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, there was a video where the cops were way too nice to George Floyd before killing him. Yeah, the news media showed the George Floyd clip all the time, which riled people up, right, by emphasizing the negative, right? That's the mainstream media predisposition. Chat says, never had a TV in my whole place. Of all the new shirts your sister bought you or your brother handed down, important that you look good. <laughs> Gotta find the TMZ clip where she stopped on Sunset Boulevard. You see Cole Stein in the background wearing a button-up shirt, one size is too small. Is this uh, Ann Coulter still hanging with David Cole? Yeah, I, I believe they're still friends. Oh, you hear the music coming from the Opera House, CNN Crisis News Network. Has Steve Saylor played golf in Australia? I don't think so. The media and the medical doctors scare you all the time. Yeah, the professions scare you because that's the way they can increase their power and influence. The political and the composer. I like Grant Adams more than Scott Adams. Luke, are you leading men to be alpha males or beta males? Well, sometimes it's appropriate to be alpha. Sometimes it's more appropriate to be beta. Elliot Blatt will deny the ocean his essence. 
Luke, you're the Scott Adams of a distant right. <laughs> Fat boomer. <laughs> Tierney doesn't even know that Love Canal was a real thing. Yeah, but he's saying that the chemical companies told them not to build, build a uh, school there. LA, why not San Francisco or San Diego too? Zero footy action from Ford. I think she's based in Florida and Cordoba. She's got many properties. Does she hang with Mickey Cowles? I'm sure at times. Yeah, beautiful day in Sydney. Uh, everything looks great, but it seems that your government are bitch tards, says the chat. Are the birds defecating all over the grass? Not that I can see. The country looks nice, but seems really authoritarian. Luke, take us to the Aussie Open. That's down in Melbourne. Did you ever sleep on UCLA or a Jewish country club golf course? I slept in the bushes at UCLA for three weeks. That ferocious noise brings me back. Ship all the trash in the center of the desert in Australia. There's nothing there. Why is San Francisco the butt of so many jokes? Platform all the wignats. I don't buy the idea that plastic is causing feminization of men. Lead is an endocrine disruptor. It was massively more prevalent when men were men. Okay, got a really vibrant chat going on. Oh, Lauren Southern, talk about Lauren Southern. If you want to hear this full interview, John Tierney with Ann Porter, go to Ann Porter's Substack. So, looking at an article here in Vanity Fair, it says that we're already heading into civil war. Right? America's already in, in a civil war. Rural America. Okay, here we go. As a second civil war. civil war underway in rural America. On the road in rural Wisconsin, the author knocks on the doors of houses that bear the darkest American symbols and flags. Behind them finding guns, ammo, and a modern philosophy of civil war. Written by Jeff Charlotte for Vanity Fair. Narrated by Jonathan Davis. Please be advised, this article contains adult language and discussion of topics that may not be suitable for children. Stuff. The thing to worry about is meanings, not appearances. Michael Lessie, Wisconsin Death Trip, 1973. Cecil, Wisconsin. I went back twice to find out what the coffin meant. But though cars came and went in the driveway, nobody ever answered the door. So you have a reasonable amount of flags in, in Australia, but not nearly as many as America. But you don't get any talk of civil war. And you certainly don't get a lot of brandishing of weapons in Australia. Halloween in June, or a sign. Kitsch, or a warning. I've been driving for a week. Why not all of those things? People are complicated. 
since the first night of the January 6th hearings, listening to them on the radio as I counted the flags. Not the American ones, but the Trump ones. Trump 2024, two years ahead of time. And the red, white, and blue of the Confederacy. The yellow, don't tread on me, Gadsden. There are so many now. What do you get reactionary politics? Oh, your friend had a band called Wisconsin Death Trip. So apparently that's a famous uh, book. So you get reactionary politics, right? Reacting to the left, you know, pushing forward with its agenda. So everything we do affects other people. And when the left enacts its agenda, that precipitates a backlash from the right. There's new folk art too. Hand-painted Fuck Biden placards. Homemade Let's Go Brandon billboards and DIY Never Forget Benghazi banners. The cities and towns still ripple with rainbow pride. Their numbers are greater. But on many country roads, the ugly emblems tick by like mile markers. So what makes these particular emblems ugly, right? For people with a right-wing perspective, these are beautiful emblems and the rainbow flag is ugly, right? This is just entirely subjective. What was the coffin, though? I was visiting friends in Cecil, Wisconsin when we drove past it. They let me out to make a picture. Careful, they said, and we'll come back for you. Because they didn't want to linger. They sped away. It's, it's funny how uh, city people are so afraid of country people, right? You're much safer in the country of warming than in, you know, jogging America than in urban areas. But uh, a lot of city, you know, liberals think that, you know, country people are all out of the, the movie Defiance. That you go to the country, they're going to make you oink like a pig. Leaving me in the green light. I made my picture. I waited. I read on my phone on Twitter that Wisconsin Republicans had blocked an effort to repeal a dormant 1849 law making any abortion, including for rape or incest, a felony. Okay, so whatever your position on abortion, right, there, there are strong reasons for it. It's not like, you know, making any abortion is just illegal and a felony is an unreasonable position. You can summon very strong arguments for it. You can summon strong arguments against it. It's just in America, it's become a sacred issue. When an issue becomes sacred, then it becomes much more difficult to compromise on. And most Americans, right, who are passionate about abortion, they realize that this is synthetic and manufactured. Yeah, I wear flip-flops on my long walks. So I just really, you know, come to enjoy you know, wearing flip-flops on my long walks. It just, I don't know, it just feels really good on the feet. Like I'm clamoring around, you know, ocean rocks in my flip-flops. Also because my, my one pair of shoes is uh, pretty worn out and very, very loose. So it takes a lot l less effort to walk in these flip-flops. So yeah, I'll do, I'll do 10, 15, 20 miles a day in these flip-flops. Yeah, one thing about you, Luke, you're not afraid of the country, unlike most of my New York City, Seattle, Mexican, Sao Paulo friends. No, the country is overwhelmingly a safe place, right? It's much safer than the city. You know, I walked for three hours completely alone in Royal National Park the other day. 
and you know, a lot of people, particularly from the city, would have freaked out. My friends returned, we fled. The next morning... Was, why would they flee? I mean, this is just groundless hysteria. I've got so many shoes at home, that's why I didn't want to... And shoes are expensive in Australia, so I didn't want to drop a hundred dollars to buy a new pair of shoes. Just go with thongs. And uh, they hold up really well. So I find it's good for my feet to you know, frequently change my, my footwear. So wear thongs for a couple of weeks, you know, wear tennis shoes for a couple of weeks. You know, wear other shoes, ski shoes for a few weeks. Just keep changing things around. The ruling came down. Dobbs v. Jackson, which overturned Roe v. Wade, and Wisconsin became the only blue state in which abortion is now effectively illegal. So Australia Day is tomorrow. There's going to be a massive concert apparently at uh, the Sydney Opera House. So that's what they're rehearsing. That's that sound bombarding my live stream from the Opera House. In 1973, the same year the U.S. Supreme Court decided 7-2 to two that Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe, had a constitutional right to privacy that included reproductive freedom, Tennis champion Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs in the televised Battle of the Sexes. Okay, that was rigged. Bobby Riggs was in trouble with gamblers, and so he threw that match. Right, Bobby Riggs would have thrashed Billie Jean King if he was playing straight on, but he threw the match. Richard Nixon declared, I am not a crook. Henry Kissinger won a Nobel Peace Prize. Also in 1973, a book appeared called Wisconsin Death Trip. So it's funny about Richard Nixon saying, I'm not a crook. You know, we all you know, say hundreds of things. Public figures say hundreds of things. It was the news media that chose to fixate on, on that one quote. Right? There's nothing inherently revelatory about that one quote, but it met, it met the, the news media's you know, anti-Nixon bent. So that's why they pull it out and emphasize it. It began as a staple-bound pamphlet, and as a book became an unlikely mirror of its moment, even as it depicted the last 15 years of the previous century. History's like that sometimes. Our faith in the forward motion of chronology suddenly evaporating. So I have a lot of mixed feelings right now. I'm about to leave Sydney, I'm about to leave Australia. I'm sad. Uh, leaving Australia and I'm incredibly excited to get back to Los Angeles and get back with my life and get back into my own space. I haven't been able to do my voice exercises, I haven't been able to do my you know, meditation, like I haven't you know, been in control of my space because you know, I've been staying with friends and family. And so I can't wait to get back into my own space, get back to my routine, you know, get back with my life. I get back to making money. I get back to my equipment. And more Pat Buchanan columns. Yeah, apparently he's retired. So he's been quite frail the last few years. It's amazing that he's cranked out as much as he has. Symphonies playing in public should be a more common thing. Yeah. Music wants to be free, bro. So we can have public goods, but we need to restrict need to restrict the super predators. 
So Virtual Pilgrim prefers the term Los Angeles, not LA. So why your strong preference for Los Angeles, not not LA? Oh, reminds me of people in San Francisco. They hate the 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 nickname Frisco. Like they reprimand me. It's not Frisco. Right? It's uh, San Fran Francisco. That San Francisco is much more intense about its sports teams. Like I feel like San Francisco is much more united around the San Francisco 49ers than the city of Los Angeles ever has been around the Los Angeles Rams. Death Trip was, on the surface, a benign album of seemingly ordinary photographs, portraits, pictures. Because San Francisco should just be SF. But uh, no one calls San Francisco SF. I call it Frisco, but I've never heard anyone call it uh, LA. San Diego would be SD, but nobody says that. Uh, because there's a special feeling in the, in the sound produced LA. It's just a more pleasing sound than SD or SF. And LA just has a ring to it. It's got that nice vowel in there, LA, LA. But SD and SF, right, doesn't have a pleasing ring to it. it there's no euphony. Periodic displays. So, Virtual Pilgrim, such a smart guy. Really pleased to have you on the show. Yeah, the Bills got utterly blown up. I thought they were going to be live in East Oregon. Oh, okay. I love Oregon. Oregon is gorgeous, man. Wow. So, yeah, I'd be interested to to meet you one day. Um, so, are you close to Iowa or Idaho? Amazing how rap hip music comes from smartphones, even speakers in public, mostly from certain race disproportionate in the population. Eugene, okay, Eugene's gorgeous. So yeah, I remember taking the five up through Oregon. And so I think we went through Eugene. And uh, just all of Oregon is, when I was there in 2001, and again, in 2007, it was just such a clean, beautiful, safe state. Now, apparently it's been deteriorated and made dirty by Antifa and Black Lives Matter protests and the like. But my memories of Oregon are just so fond. So I believe Kevin McDonald moved to Oregon, right? But then is he moving to Maine? Yeah, Eugene is a lovely little town. I just loved everything about Oregon. It's completely fell in love with, with Oregon. Isn't it still like 90% white? God forbid. So Virtue Pilgrim, how open are you with your you know, political and cultural perspectives? Um, do, you, do you share them with family? Do you share them with friends? Do you share them socially? Oh, they're singing some Aussie patriotic songs. Such a great sound. Or do you do you keep your your power levels, you know, hidden? Yeah, Donovan Walland is in Eugene, Oregon. I just want to stand up now with this patriotic Aussie music. Advance Australia Fair. That's the national anthem. from one small town. But you pilgrim said my girlfriend can't stand my politics. Yeah, because, you know, women are far more 
sensitive to social ostracism. You know, women are much more sensitive to what is socially acceptable. They're much more afraid of being socially isolated. So we only got Advanced Australia Fair in 1983 when Labour took over. So prior to 1983, the national anthem was God Save the Queen. Fox Day is your mentor. But how did you avoid going down the rabbit hole of QAnon and some of the, the disastrous uh, you know, turns that Vox Day's made over the past few years? Oh, it's alright. If you need to stand up right now listening to the Australian National Anthem, I understand. Yeah, I noticed when I lived in and around the San Francisco Bay Area that uh, they were still very strong supporting their teams even when their teams were having bad seasons they you know they'd get invested in the farm team say of the San Francisco Giants so yeah I noticed much more intensity in their sporting allegiances in San Francisco compared to LA so yeah virtual pilgrim how did you avoid going down the, the stupid rabbit holes that uh, Vox Day descended into like QAnon in Wisconsin, Black River Falls, during the last decade of the 19th century. Interspersed are excerpts from the town newspaper, the Black River Falls Badger State Banner, and whispers from a town gossip. Wow, Matt Forney lost 100 pounds. So is that accompanied by a deep, you know, inner spiritual and psychological change? Or, you know, is it just a temporary thing? curious. In 1973, a year of crises as varied and vast as those of this year, most white Americans still imagined the previous century as an idol. Apart... Well, guess what? The previous century was an idol. And not just for white Americans, but also for black Americans and brown Americans and Asian Americans. It was an idol compared to other alternatives in the real world. Like compared to some mythical paradise, then America's a horrible place. Compared to other alternatives in the real world, America has been an idol. And not just for white Americans, for, for all that uh, blacks have suffered and Asians have suffered and brown people have suffered and gays have suffered. Like where else you know, would life be better for them than in the United States? So... What's going on with Vox Day these days? Like, I guess I tuned out from him about three years ago when he was just going down the QAnon rabbit hole. So, yeah, what's going on with Vox Day? From a brief interruption for civil war, fought for reasons they thought romantic. Virtuous country life, bustling urban industry, American greatness. The banner spoke other truths epidemic disease whole families consumed diphtheria the formation in the throat of a false membrane astonishing bank failure incendiaries arsonists who love to watch things burn okay Richard Pilgrim says I don't know anything about a QAnon 
and uh, don't even know where to go to find out about it. It's probably a good thing. All right, let's see what's uh, going on with Richard Hananya's podcast. He has on Joe Heinrich. So he's the Ruth Moore Professor of Biological Anthropology and Professor of Human Evolutionary Biology. He's a recent guest. Understanding the Flows of History. This is uh, Garrett Jones. So let's, uh, let's fast forward here. He was plus democracy and most recently uh, the culture the culture transplant which he's which he's holding up for those of you who are watching the video uh garrett how you doing i'm doing great it's great to be here thanks for having me so i was thinking about the relationship as i was reading the culture transplant to a hive mind in, in particular um yeah what, what would you uh what would you suspect the correlation is or do you, do you even know the core do you know the correlation have you done the test of uh say technological development and, and uh chat says i'd like to see people like vox day and richard spencer and bullet point you know, newsletters. Well, you can essentially get that just by checking out Richard Spencer's Twitter feed. And uh, I assume that Vox Day is what on, on Gab, or or you can just I assume scan scan the headlines. It'll be time to put a little power into this phone. Okay, here we go. We we fill with power now. I'm going to assume so. 1500 and national IQ today. You know, I would guess it's got to be like 0.5 plus, but I literally have never run it. Of all the regressions I've run, that's not one that I've, I've never actually merged those two data sets. Um, I'm really hoping that somebody else will do it because to me, I think of it as uh, HiveMind is a story about sort of the short to medium run. And one of the limitations of HiveMind is that I can tell you a lot about where IQ takes you, but I can't tell you much about where IQ comes from as the current. Okay, this is Professor Economist Garrett Jones, author of The HiveMind, talking with Richard Hananya, who's of uh, Palestinian background. So forward causation, I know about. Uh, with culture transplant, I can say a lot more about the long run. I can say a lot more about where cultural traits come from. I can say that based on good evidence that you know, these, these traits, these cultural traits persist to a large degree for centuries with high likelihood. So I find, I think of it as a, a story about micro foundations, about causal channels, about like where prosperity comes from at the micro level. And so cultural traits persisting. Uh, my, my impression of the evidence is that uh, people don't assimilate except in the more superficial ways, but their life results tend to mirror, you know, what they were getting in their homelands. So Japanese Americans tend to have life results similar to Japanese Japanese. Swedish Americans tend to have life results similar to the Swedes. In a way, uh, culture transplant is a very long run story about where prosperity comes from at the macro level. Yeah, this, but isn't there isn't there you know a simpler story we can tell? So it's like it's I felt like so I got excited actually when you said that it's a part of the book we're gonna go we're gonna calculate every nation's SAT score. And I'm like yeah. oh finally we're talking about IQ. Yeah, he's got yeah. he's hive mind and but no it was it was it was something. Did you do that on purpose by the way? I'm assuming. I'm assuming I like I, I like the contrast between IQ and SAT. When I thought of it years ago, uh, the I well the contrast between IQ and SAT is that uh, IQ is gets much closer to the general factor of intelligence. Uh, SAT scores can only approximate uh, IQ. So IQ tests are a much, much more accurate test of intelligence than an SAT score. So intelligence correlates, what, about 0.3 with educational attainment, and what, about 0.5 with objective testing like SAT scores? Yeah, these, these three famous deep root scores that are created by others, state history, agricultural history, and technological history, basically what your ancestors were doing hundreds or thousands of years ago regarding states, ag, and tech. Uh, 
like once I realized the acronym was SAT, I just knew I was going to stick with that. So. <laughs> I mean, it sort of it bothers me a little bit because let's say, okay, you can say I'm going to protect the weight of a nation from its height, okay? And I have I have measures of height, and then someone can come along and say, okay, I'm going to take the measure of height of 1500, you know, from, yes. the, from the people. And it's, it strikes me as sort of like that. It's like why why do that when you have this, which would it would explain 1500 too. I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that if you use ChatGPT, GPT, and you ask ChatGPT, are men taller than women? It will say something like. No, essentially, that uh, you know, many women are taller than men. Like ChatGPT is so woke, right? it, it, it's programmed in such a absurd left-wing direction. And uh, Google search has just really deteriorated. Like Google search used to be awesome until what about eight years ago, and then it just gets worse and worse. It's interesting that 1,500 and 2,000 have a strong correlation. Um, but why not just say there's one variable that, that seems to be driving all this stuff? Oh, the real reason why is because you can't say, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about IQ as the, as the contrast here, or test scores, however you measure them, is that I really can't say as much credibly that is of good scientific quality about where what changes IQ scores over time. I mean, um, and where they come from and how persistent they are. Like, we just don't have the data that is to my standards. Like, I'm happy to have people speculate about it, and I'm glad that there's further research going on in this area. But um, it's basically the question of... Uh, yeah, I can tell you what uh, changes IQ scores, right? If intelligent people have more children than unintelligent people you get a positive direction in iq scores if less intelligent people less intelligent than the average have more in children than more intelligent people then iq scores start to decline which when can i be pretty confident that a policy change will have a real effect and with the deep roots literature which looks at how migration how the traits that migrants carry with them persist for generations that's been tested well enough that we can check that Nobody's run those kind of tests for IQ. So you can't, you can't basically, you can't credibly say, well, if we bring in, uh, if our country brings in a lot of migrants from high test scoring countries, well, those high test scores persist for three, four, five generations. Like I have a hunch that kind of that's going to kind of be true, but I can't point to real literature on it. Nobody's tested it. So basically I'm, I'm wedded to the evidence. I have this sort of empirical. Okay. So people develop reputations, right? The Chinese developed a reputation for above average intelligence. The, the Japanese developed a reputation for above average intelligence. Jews, Ashkenazi Jews over the past 700 years developed a reputation for above average intelligence. Other groups developed a reputation for below average intelligence. So there's no really much European conception of race or concern with race until Europeans met Africans. And that was such a shocking experience that uh, beginning in about the 18th century, Europeans started focusing more and more on, on race. Whole macroeconomist bias for. What can I actually say with a high degree of credibility? What has been checked by people more famous than me three or four different ways? And with cultural traits, we can say this because we can interview Italians in Italy and we can interview fourth generation Italian Americans and see that they're kind of similar. Uh, yeah, I mean, but there, there are some, you know, there is some research that I've seen that indicates that these things are, are pretty sticky. So, I mean, there's something that's, you know, very strong that gets down to causation that um, I think Brian Kaplan has talked about on his blog. That basically, if you look at adoptees, I forget which Nordic country, might have been Sweden. Yeah. Um, and they had the data, and then, you know, like, they, they sort of, you know, they were all improved. Well, they have to gap, right? So, yeah, being coming from a low test scoring country and going to a higher test scoring country maybe closes half the gap. Yeah. So, you have, you have immigrants to the U.S., you have immigrants to Europe. Um, yeah. you have, and the, so, the, the mixed emotion is, is very taxing. I, I just read uh, on people. So yeah, really experiencing the, the, the mixed emotions right now. So do you experience mixed emotions as like particularly taxing? I mean, I think I'd rather have mixed emotions than you know, generally negative emotions. But uh, you know, looking around here at all, all the beauty in Sydney, knowing that I'm going to be leaving here very shortly, right? There's sadness there. And 
know, getting getting a big send off, seeing my new friends at synagogue and saying goodbye to my new friends. Right, it's you know, it's sad, but then uh, but then there's the excitement of getting back to my friends and community and, and to my life in, in Los Angeles. So feeling you know, both of these you know contradictory things just uh, rushing through me right now. <laughs> Chat GBT makes my YouTube comments, which is why they are often so snarky. <laughs> Virtual Pilgrim. What the heck? It seems seems similar to the to the cultural data, right? Well, I mean, there I can't say that I'm really excited. I've done uh, I've seen second third generation tests that I'm persuaded by. Like I'm happy to let people like. I'm glad to have other people do this, right? That's the reason I wrote this trilogy. Is like I want to help other people do more stuff in this general. Well, there is, you know, distinctive Ashkenazi Jewish culture. There is distinctive, you know, Japanese American culture. There is, you know, distinctive, you know, German American culture. So yeah, there, there does seem to be a persistence of, of cultural traits and and achievement traits and uh, life history tra traits. Hilarious. In a credible way, um, but uh, I, you know, so there's always this is really a case where further research is needed, and I'm hoping that a younger generation of academics uh, runs the, exactly the kind of tests you're thinking about, but for third or fourth generation migrants. Mm. So one, you know, one question I had about this data about these, um, you know, these migrants going into like third, fourth generation. How far do you go? You never go further than fourth. Right? This is what we have with the. Um... And the chat says I want to hear you know Asian comments on race. Well, when I talk to Asians, they're quite reluctant to say anything controversial in general, right? They're not nearly as much risk takers, it seems, compared to Europeans, right? They're much less likely to want to rock the boat. They're much more concerned about social exclusion, uh, you know, upsetting the, the teacher, upsetting the professor, you know, upsetting their, you know, career trajectory. So they're much less likely to be outspoken on controversial issues. That's that's my life experience. With what I think of as the cultural persistence literature. And then we have this separate deep roots literature that checks to see how is a place doing, how was a part of the world doing in 1500? And if a country got a lot of migrants from that part of the world, how is that new country doing today? So it basically helps you look a lot at the new world. And it, helped, it, it ends up using the new world as a sort of fortifying sandbox for measuring the effects of migration on long-run prosperity. Yeah. So I mean, I was you know a little bit taken aback because you know you talk about fourth generation Swedish Americans and German Americans. I haven't met many of many of those people are usually pretty mixed by that generation. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought there could be a kind of bias in the data. And you know, yeah, I was learning about this. Yeah. And you know, so it could be. So like, okay, so one of the hints here is one of the studies shows okay, there's less assimilation by the fourth generation than the than the second generation, right? They yeah. go backwards. They go back to Sweden. Or they go back to Italy, and they're intervarying this whole time. And my suspicion is that people. One one striking thing is how low achieving third and fourth generation Mexican-Americans are in California and how much more high achieving they are in Texas and in Florida. So California tends to attract you know, very low achieving Mexican and Central Americans compared to type of Latinos who move to Texas or Florida. So I would assume that California's much more generous welfare policies you know, attract you know, a less impressive cohort of Mexican-Americans than, say, what uh, you know, the, the less welfare-friendly Texas and, and Florida attract.
are identifying um, ethnically based on maybe some kind of stereotypes. Let's say I'm a guy who likes to wear gold chains and, you know, I like to hang out with my family and kiss my mother. Maybe I am likely to identify as Italian. Uh-huh. And same thing with Swede. I mean, there's this, this bias in the sort of uh, the demographic data for voting. You know, they say Hispanics, they vote Democrat. Well, the people, a lot of people who vote Republican end up no longer identifying as Hispanic and start identifying as white. Um, yeah, so do yeah. you think that there could be something? So Hispanics in Florida, I think, voted for Ron DeSantis. And Hispanics in Texas, you know, they vote Republican at about a 40% level. So it's uh, Latinos in California who, who vote Republican at about a 30% level, which makes sense because Latinos in Texas and Florida are much higher achieving, make a lot more money per capita than Latinos in California. So it makes sense that they would be more appreciative of, you know, more free market policies while lower achieving people, you know, want more government spending and social welfare. Like that, going on, because the fourth generation versus the second generation, that's strange. It, you know, it, it's hard to explain sort of in any other way. Oh, I think it's, it's uh, easy to explain if you think that actually cultural persistence is real through some mix of unknown channels, which could include genetics, could include just uh, cultural focal points, you know, sort of multiple equilibrium things. Uh, the culture and the genes are getting diluted, I mean, through intermarriage, aren't they? These people usually aren't pure, whatever, whatever background they are. Yeah, I, this I don't I don't know enough about to what extent. You don't have to be pure to be able to draw, you know, stereotypes. Man, I'm trying to do this high quality live stream and all the music blasting from the Sydney Opera House right now. Is that really conducive to the elucidation of my highly nuanced thinking? Right? Genealogies don't have to be pure for people to be able to detect, you know, stereotypical results people like say in the US, right? The country that we know best about. Uh, that's true. I mean, I think you can probably say it with greater confidence in a place like Canada. So fourth generation Chinese Canadians probably are, they think of they think of themselves as Chinese Canadians because they're predominantly of Chinese background. So not because of like the way they dress, what kind of restaurants they eat at. So Australia is about 20% Asian, but when you're, you're still that distinct a minority, right? You are going to, genetically assimilated into the mainstream. So the odds are fairly good that many of those Asians will marry someone who's Caucasian, and then their half-Asian children more likely will marry another Caucasian rather than an Asian. So the fact that it's about working in other countries too um, is, um, is probably an important sign that, some, that a lot of this is real just cultural persistence. Yeah. yeah. Rather than self-identification, I've often wondered how much the self-identification channel matters, but I just can't imagine that it's swamps, so. Yeah, the, um, you know, I'm glad you opened the book. You opened the book with the story of Argentina. And Argentina yeah. is interesting because I think that one of the problems, um, so, you know, I've gone back and forth on the immigration issue. I talked to you, I, I talked to Brian, I have free market instincts. I believe in culture, I believe these things are, are sort of sticky. So, you know, you can see how it's sort of, you know, conflicted on this stuff. I think one thing I never thought of was, okay, is there a country where we can see they let in immigrants and then everything collapsed? And I, I, trying to do a high quality live stream here. We've got this helicopter overhead. Just no respect for, for live streaming. No respect for cultural discourse here in Australia. Like these profane, mundane elements, just overwhelming, just trashing my, my live stream. I'm striving here to provide life-changing insights and bloody helicopters. What the heck, guys?
the, the life of the public intellectual it just gets no respect here in Australia. Argentina, um, you know, their economy, um, you know, doing poorly relative to 100 years ago. But I, I didn't connect it to immigration. So can you talk about that? I found that particularly compelling. Yeah, sure. Um, so Argentina was one of the richest countries in the world about 100 years ago. Uh, and then the uh, leaders of the country just... Okay. If you can't beat them, can't beat them, it's... Uh, coming time to, to join them. Let's see what's, what's going on here at the Opera House. Oh, just as I get up, just as I get ready, then the music stops. Okay. I've been sitting on my hat. Here we go. down where it's all happening. My, my phone has rested up in the shade, so I shouldn't overheat for a few minutes anyway. It's a great place for a concert, eh? And a great place to celebrate Australia Day. Get out on the harbour. Take a nice cruise for 10 bucks. I think it was about 1974, the Sydney Opera House you know, finally was constructed. I think I made my first visit here. I think 1976, it was a class trip. closed off mate. And this is where they're rehearsing the magnificent Australia Day ceremonies. But uh, not a lot of sense that you know civil war is going to kick off right? Don't see a lot of uh, political and social activism. Right? Aussies just want to have a good time mate. drink, have a feed, have a walk, have a swim, watch a bit of telly, have a nap, maybe have a flutter at the pokies, at the poker machines. I was out at Watson's Bay yesterday, there was a big nude beach, and uh, there were like nude people, and non-nude people, you know, kids, adults, men, women, everyone uh, enjoying the nude beach, like the clothed, the unclothed. It's a public sign that it's a nude beach, so generally speaking, you can't go naked at Australian beaches unless it's a specially designated nude beach. 
They used to, you can get topless, the women can get topless. It used to be that it probably like a quarter of them would get topless. But since uh, massive Muslim immigration in the 1990s, 2000s, right? Australian women have stopped going topless at the beaches. So we had the Cronulla riots, what was that, circa 2005? Because uh, Australians thought that their, their women were being disrespected by Muslim immigrants. So yeah, it's a massive riots. Okay. Get back to the high quality discourse here. I'm not sure that it was Aussie women being topless that caused the Muslim riots at Cronulla, but it was, you know, Muslim men were, were abusing uh, Australian women for, you know, not wearing very much. So it may not have exactly been uh, the, the whole toplessness thing. But uh, there was certainly a culture clash. And the beaches are Australia's cathedrals. So the Aussies didn't take very well to this kind of remonstrance. And created a strong movement to actually move the country in that direction. Ta-da. You know? Um, so progressive academics are happy to talk about how migrants changed the institutions in Argentina. My claim isn't that that's the whole story, right? It, my claim is that this is an important puzzle to solve. And if economists would just walk down the hall and ask historians what they think about Argentina's institutional decline, they would learn something. They would get access to a literature they've never seen before. And, you know... Once you once you see it, you just can't you can't not see it, right? It's just it's there forever. So, see, Argentina's institutional decline um, was kicked off in part by a wave of migrants who became politically active. Wow! So he's saying that Argentina in the 1880s, along with Australia, were the richest nations in the world, and then Argentina imported a bunch of anarchists and socialists who became political activists and turned that country upside down. So probably for the sake of prosperity, not a good idea to import a bunch of uh, socialists and anarchists and communists. Right? Probably not the, not the best. Within a generation or so. But Argentina, but the one thing that's confused, Argentina, what was the, the majority demographic before? It was, it was Spaniards, I assume, right? Uh, so in a southern cone, it would be very close to half. I don't know about the majority, whether it would be exactly majority or not. So, um, like whether a slim majority or slim, just short of a majority. Uh, but in that ballpark, yeah. So the southern cone of Latin America is has disproportionately European migrants. So if you look at North, if you look at the Americas, both the far north and the far south were, are disproportionately um, made up of people of uh, European descent. Yeah, but would, would someone, if someone had known about the discovered, had known about this, the deep roots literature in 1900, would they have predicted that Spaniard 
So it was in the 1880s that America became the richest nation in the world, though per capita Argentina and Australia may have been a little ahead of the United States. And then after World War I, America became increasingly dominant for this military, but by the end of World War II, the United States of America was unquestionably militarily, culturally, economically the number one power in the world. So you don't believe in multitasking, so this is where I do a lot of multitasking. I'll watch sporting events with the sound off and just listen to podcasts. So I wonder what my retention level is. So I think it's pretty good. That's that's where I get like the, the highlights of things that I want to play and comment on for my own show. Would have would have changed uh, Argentina in this way? No, if all you knew was the deep roots literature, you wouldn't have predicted it. But that's but that's you know the beauty is is that my my uh, the culture transplant is is not a monocausal story. There's more than one way your culture can change. I'm documenting three big ways in the course of the book. Um, this attitude persistence literature, which is probably more general than just the national level stuff that I'm looking at. Uh, the deep roots literature, which looks at 500 years ago stuff, and then the ethnic diversity uh, literature. So there are multiple channels through which culture can be changed. And um, the idea of just um, if, you have a micro- if a country accidentally wound up with a migration policy that disproportionately favored communist activists, um, even though I don't have any formal statistical tests of that, of that in my book, I'd be willing to believe that uh, a migration policy that formally favored communist activists would have bad long-run political consequences. Do you uh, Have you done any reading on American history and sort of how much of the labor movement and how much of anarchism and all this stuff was, was imported from abroad? Um, well, yeah, it was all imported from abroad. Right, mainly uh, Eastern Europeans. No, I have not. I sort of uh, have, a, I guess, a slight bias against reading too much about America, right? When I when I get into writing any of my books, I already know that I uh, carry too much American thinking in my worldview. And so I just don't want to, like, beef up on that. I don't want to let... I know the rest of the world does a lot of this, and I, I've done it accidentally. But I, um, I'm trying to tell stories that people haven't heard. And so... And, and I want to give a global perspective to my readers. And so that's the kind of reason I wouldn't, I mean, you know, we know that uh, some of the, I mean, that is true in the U.S. experience, right? To some degree, I just don't know what to what extent, but it's just, it's so easy when you're reading the history. So I'm hanging out right now at the Botanical Gardens, the Royal Botanical Gardens, overlooking the Sydney Opera House and the Sydney Harbour, saying goodbye to Sydney. From Argentina to see people talk about how the how migrants and their second generation descendants were key figures in this movement. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when I was reading the book, I had a little bit of an opposite impression. It's like, you know, how valuable is the cross-national data when you have, it's like, okay, you, you're you trying to explain, say, like the average person's diet on their athletic performance, right? And then you have like LeBron James and like you're taking, and you're trying to explain him when LeBron James is like such a unique individual, right? But like America yeah. is like a remarkable, you know, country in a lot of yeah. ways. So I wonder maybe, maybe. Okay, let's uh, see if we can fast forward through some of the less scintillating material and that that applies to the countries you want it to be true for and it applies to the countries you don't want it to be true for potential interactions that uh-huh. you might think you know having one or two good case studies so let me give you my sort of interpretation of american politics and american history and uh, you know arguing that how immigration potentially our diversity could actually lead to smaller government so richard Anani is not a good host right it's not a good interviewer because he's continually saying to guests, oh, let me give you my opinion, let me give you my thesis, and have you react to my thinking. All right, that's not a good way to conduct an interview.
government, even though that might not be the norm, you know, across across the world. So basically, you had two explosions in American, uh, the size of the American federal government, right? You had uh, uh, FDR in the uh, 30s and uh, 40s, and then you had um, the Johnson administration, right? And you basically had this backlash to liberalism that was, uh, you know, related to civil rights, was related to uh, affirmative action. Chat says, I didn't like drama in my life. I didn't like drama in my life either, except to a degree, you know, some drama with the, doing the live stream, right? That's fine. I don't want it like right up in my personal life. But the more people you have in your life, the more drama, all right? So if you want a drama-free or drama minimum life, then you can have a minimum number of intense, important, strong relationships in your life. But yeah, in my relationships, you know, yeah, obviously I prefer a minimum of drama, but... 1960s. And the Republican Party has gone right... It's not it's not Eisenhower, Nelson Rockefeller's Republican Party anymore. And I think that's directly related to our diversity. So since 19, you know, since the 1960s, you know, we haven't really had massive expansive uh, expansive of the federal government in a way that's like Medicare or Medicaid or the Civil Rights Act or Social Security or any of these things. Um, And, you know, this this could. And he thinks this is a great thing. Well, sometimes embarking on grand national projects is a great thing. And you can't do that in a divided country. Because this arguably was because our diversity prevented. We didn't have another Johnson. We didn't have. Oh, the other important thing with regard to drama is basically it's, it's a mark of your maturity. How much drama, how much conflict, how much stress you, know, you can handle without acting out against yourself and against other people. So some people are able to handle you know a vast amount of drama without it. You know, taking them over. They are able to keep calm when everyone around them is, is losing their head. So those people are very impressive to me. I would, I would like to emulate them. Right? There can be, you know, all sorts of conflict and, and drama, and uh, but they are able to stay centered. Have an FDR. Maybe whatever we would have gone as far as these European uh, social democratic states. Otherwise, uh, does, does that strike you as a plausible reading of American history? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that fits the, the standard story that basically when there's more ethnic diversity, there's less of a common feeling among the people. And so they're less likely to take on sort of grand tasks together. But that has bad implications as well. Taking on grand tasks is part of how you do things like go to the moon or go to Mars, right? So uh, if you're going to say like, hey, if we have diversity. So, yeah, I've often been reproved in my life for being excitable. So I had a very cool, calm, collected uh, journalism advisor at Placer High School. And uh, he later told me that I challenged him more than any other student he had. He hoped that he'd had some kind of calming effect on me. But uh, I admire people like Robert Burge, my my journalism advisor, just always cool and calm. And I was very excitable and, uh, and dramatic. Good thing with age is that uh, I think you know most people tend to calm down, become more more agreeable. But this is good stuff about the importance of social cohesion, social trust, and you know a sense of connection as opposed to diversity, which which celebrates you know how little in common we have. If we have more ethnic diversity, let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to take on fewer grand tasks. And somewhere on the list of grand tasks will be, we'll have fewer things like Social Security. I'll be like, what's the rest of the things on the list that we won't have? Please tell me. Well, maybe the, maybe the government doesn't get to the moon, but maybe we privatize everything. And maybe maybe SpaceX eventually gets there, right? I bet on the U.S. doing it before uh, Sweden or, or China. 
yeah, that's that's uh, that's very likely. Now, but but is it the question? One question you should be asking yourself is. Um, if the reason this is happening is because people are basically defecting more in prisoners' dilemmas, how many great things happen when people in the world of politics start defecting more in prisoners' dilemmas? And the answer? The prisoners' dilemma is when you have two prisoners, right? If they band together, they can collectively achieve better outcomes. But if one person informs first on the other, then the person who informs first gets the advantage. So he's talking prisoners' dilemma is when people feel like they're engaged in a joint project and they're willing to sacrifice for each other, you can achieve much greater things and have a you know far superior society than when everyone just acts for themselves and just tries to get all the gusto they can without how it affects others in the wider society. There's like not a lot of great stuff. You're probably going to see more sort of, um, you're, it's institutional quality relies on some sort of willingness to cooperate and repeat a prisoner's dilemmas, I think. And um, weakening that force has some sizable negative consequences. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you do you see? I mean, do you see how much do you think of sort of you know? Because you know, the, so Iglesias has written about this uh, thing called you know the secret Congress. So basically, well, you know, is there a model of of uh, American yeah. politics where the culture war is sort of just a great distraction? It's actually a great distraction because it stops us from doing like stupid you know new kinds of government programs. And then like you know they are cooperating. So you have these you have these uh, you know the, the, some of the big stuff recently. I mean, a lot of the, the stimulus bill wasn't really that contested. I mean, given um, you know I don't know. That was a great thing to visit Australia, where the culture wars aren't raging, where there's no discussion of civil war. Right, where, where you don't feel like you're living in apocalyptic, apocalyptic times, I kind of see the, the advantages of social cohesion. If it's good or bad, but it wasn't, you know, the last few uh, coronavirus things weren't that uh, highly contested. Um, you have, um, you know, like Operation Warp Speed didn't become like the biggest partisan football in the world. There was a little bit of partisanship to it. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. About critical race theory, and we fight about this, and we, and we fight about that. And maybe like, you just need a, you don't need like a the whole culture. You just need like a subculture of like serious human beings who, who uh, you know, who behave responsibly and the masses will be distracted yeah. by what they're well, I, can't, I can't assume that can't open her. So I can't assume we can't open up a subculture. Did you hear what Richard and Anya just said? Maybe you don't need a culture. Right? Maybe you just need, you know, a vibrant subcultures, right? Of course we need a culture. You know, of course we need things to tie us together. Of course we need, you know, reasons to sacrifice for each other. And of course we need reasons to you know, feel a connection and an affection for our fellow citizens. I mean, this idea of maybe we don't need a, a culture, that's insane thinking. Now, of course, a nation needs a culture, a dominant culture that people hold in common. Without that, you know, you're just twisting and turning in the winds. Culture that's just going to keep on keeping on. So I'm in favor of secret Congress. I think there's a lot of stuff like that that happens. But again, if we think of cross-country comparisons rather than just focusing on the U.S., we'll probably find out that a lot of countries with low to meet low institutional quality still manage to find ways to, I don't know, keep the electricity on a lot and keep the water running. And so you can say, wow, this is a triumph. These institutional quality discussions are totally overrated because look, the electricity works 90% of the time in our country. Look, only only 2% of our population gets sick from the water every year. This is a huge triumph. So like a lot of countries make a lot of- Speaking of civil war, Luke says the chat, I was listening to your dad talk about 1844. So yeah, my father sparked a civil war within the Seventh-day Adventist church. My father was a polarizer. You know, unlike myself, who's a you know kind, calm uniter of people, <laughs> my father was was the big stirrer. Of things limp along, and there's a sort of grading on a curve that's been happening. I think in a lot of these settings, so using cross country comparisons makes it a little bit harder to grade on a curve and to say, oh, I'm sure my team's doing just great because I can I can list some things. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 right. I mean, that, that that makes that makes sense to that makes sense to me. How much do you see sort of the issue of immigration as just a sort of a tail end risk? Because you know the the costs. I mean, make sense. I mean, I think that I think that a critic might say that immigration is just a tail end risk. Like immigration determines wage rates. It has a huge role to play in in rent prices, in affordable family foundation. You know, can you afford to to build a family? Uh, housing prices, right? What kind of live streamer would my dad have been? Very good. <laughs> yeah, my father was a very accomplished public speaker, and the bigger the audience, the more energized he was. So I was just doing a blog post on, on fame. You know, is fame good? Is fame bad? Uh, my father always thought he was going to become much more famous than, than he did. We'd watch the Phil Donahue show together sometimes in 1983, 84, when I was still in high school. And my father would often say, I'm going to be on that show one day. Uh, so my father was written up in the LA Times in Newsweek. This is in 1980, 81, when he split from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You're not taking the benefits seriously enough. So this is like Brian's idea of you know twenty dollar bills just lying on lying on the ground. That you know the, the, you know you have a you have a certain outcome. You have a certain outcome that if you say substantially boosted uh, uh, immigration to America, uh, you would see these people have you know multiply their uh, incomes by you know uh, several times. And maybe this cultural stuff you know has an indirect effect, and maybe it has a long term effect. But you know what would you say to somebody who's just like it's 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 certain benefits versus uncertain uh, costs, despite how good the science you might point to is. It's not as certain as people's income will rise if they move from the third world to the first world. I'd say the core reason is, is uh, particularly what uh, comes from innovation. So there are seven countries in the world that create most of the world's new ideas, and the entire world has a plan. The entire planet has an interest in making sure the institutions work well in these countries. And so taking even moderate risks with institutional quality in the U.S., uh, South Korea, Japan, China, the U.K., Germany, France, these are the I-7, I call them, the innovative seven countries. Taking even moderate risks with their institutional quality is costly for the whole world. And so um, I'm happy to entertain um, open borders type experiments for places like Iceland. Um, you know, if you can put 300 million people there in a country with 300,000, it would only be about as dense as maybe Singapore, I think. So I think it would work just fine. Um, and so if the open borders people arrive and that's only a tail risk, let's take that risk with Iceland. And let's not take it in a country that produces a wildly disproportionate portion of the world's scientific and technological ideas, which are shared worldwide. Yeah, that makes, that makes, that makes. Okay, Garrett Jones there speaking some uh, common sense about immigration and risk and uh, I want to share with you an excellent podcast I was just listening to All in the Mind it is the product of ABC the national broadcaster here in Australia and it's a podcast on the dark side of fame dark side of fame and uh, what it does to the mind and uh, made me write up a blog post on look4.net on the bright side of fame the dark side of fame what does it do to the mind This is an ABC podcast. 
Have you ever wanted to be famous? Depending on your personality, the answer might be a hard no. No way. But it might be a yes, even if you're embarrassed to admit it. And why not? Fame seems to offer huge benefits. Wealth, access, validation, adoration. But we also know being a celebrity comes at a huge cost, and the experience can be incredibly isolating. You can get into this headspace where everything feels like a fantasy, and then nothing is reality anymore. And that's where things get dangerous. So today, we examine how fame can affect a person's psychology, and what happens when the brain you've lived with your whole life suddenly gets the spotlight. When you're famous, it does feel like you're at the center of the world and all of the various problems or issues kind of revolve around you. And you generally have a lot of people treating you as if that's true also. So the news media loves to do stories on the dark side of fame. Uh, one is a contrarian perspective. And uh, it's kind of attention getting because there's something innate in us that wants a good name, that wants to be admired. Like uh, the gift of fame is something that God promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis, in the book of Rashid, to use the Hebrew. He says, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Like the whole world will be blessed by you. Right? One of his, his blessings to Abraham is that, you know, I'm going to make you famous. God is blessing Abraham, so obviously a good name and worldwide influence from, from a divine perspective is thought to be an excellent thing. Recognize that voice? It's musician Ben Lee. This is All in the Mind, I'm Sana Kadar, and this week's episode comes to you from producer Jennifer Lee. I'm really very clearly remember when I was eight years old, I said to my mum, I want to be on television. And then after that, at every birthday wish, I wished that I wanted to be famous. Natalie Gauchy won season five of Australian Idol. That was in 2007. A young Matt Corby was runner-up. I was singing on Hayman Island, and then I got really tired of um, singing covers and covers and covers and covers and covers, and I thought, I'm going to do something else. I just wanted to follow my dream. So I got to experience some fame. I was on 60 Minutes, I was on Entertainment Tonight, I was written up in the Los Angeles Times, the, the New York Times, I was on Fox Files, right, and I was on The True Hollywood Story. And so the benefits of fame, in my experience, is that you feel the world kind of opening up to you, that there are new possibilities. You get to experience new thoughts and new feelings that you wouldn't otherwise if you hadn't you know, experienced this, this new state. Uh, it makes making money easier. It uh, opens up travel, so I got to travel at no expense to me to Montreal and to England. You get to meet new people. So because of my blogging, all right, I lost a lot of friends and alienated some people who were related to me. And I was able to replace them with people I, I'd met when I, I became famous. I also got to reconnect with people from my past who I'd had no connection with in, in decades, but then they suddenly they read about me in the Rolling Stone and then they get in touch or some woman that uh, I'd wanted to date and it, it just never happened but you know she got back in touch with me so a lot of people from my past would reconnect after they see me on the on the telly so you get to to mix with a new circle uh, in the in the world of uh, journalism all right i became treated like a peer by 
you know, successful journalists and authors. So I was able to interview a lot more people. A lot of, you know, doors kind of opened up to me with fame. And so I thought Australian Idol would be kind of the best way for me to get myself out there and open up a platform and expose myself to a bigger, wider audience. Natalie was 26 when she won the competition. It secured her a record contract with Sony BMG and a tour around Australia, her debut. So obviously some people can't handle fame, right? So for half the people who become famous, it ends up not being good for them. Just like some people can't handle chocolate. Like my dad, he would never eat chocolate because he found it easier to completely abstain from chocolate than to be moderate. Right, so if you can't handle chocolate, then having no chocolate is the, is the best. If you can't handle the intensity of, of you know, sex, then you know, abstaining from particularly promiscuous sex is you know, the best thing. If you can't handle the appeal of you know, Coca-Cola or of rock music or of social media, you know, whatever, of uh, gambling, right? What probably a third of people who gamble, it significantly damages their lives. So a lot of dopamine rushes, right, are not something that you can handle. You know, some women get addicted to romance novels so that they stay up reading all night and then they're groggy and unavailable for their husband and their kids. So apparently I've been listening to Dopamine Nation author Anna Lemke and she talks about whenever you, you like take a piece of chocolate that uh, your brain is wired for homeostasis. So when you get that, that dopamine rush of eating a piece of chocolate, then the body you know, and the mind has to rejigger itself so that uh, it, it balances against the dopamine effect of the chocolate and puts you a little bit more into the negative direction because evolutionarily we are wired to be absolutely insatiable, to never be satisfied so that you know, we're driven to conquer and you know, have sex and to eat as much as possible. We did not evolve to be satisfied with you know, one partner, with one berry bush, you know, with, after the killing of one animal. We're insatiable for more, more, more. So when we get a dopamine rush from something like chocolate or, or gambling, then our brains rewire so that we, we feel less happy and we want more, more, more. So some people can't handle certain dopamine rushes. So for people with an addictive personality, such as such as myself, wasn't insatiable a movie? Yeah, I think, I think it was. Marilyn Chambers, she was such a nice woman. I, I met Marilyn Chambers. She was uh, just a really lovely person. And a great actress. The album was certified platinum. But despite all her success, just before the release of her second album, Natalie walked away. I was so close to releasing the single I'd recorded. Sony were ready to take it to radio, they were playing it, it was like they So a lot of people quote unquote walk away after they've been pushed out. <laughs> so your boss fires you and then you tell people, oh, I just walked away from that job. It was like they hit before it was even a hit, like they were loving it. And I wrote the song. I mean, I. I got creative freedom, I got everything I wanted, you know, so it was not, it wasn't them. I ran away from Sony, I left Sony, I didn't go ahead with that album, and it was my choice. 
and and I tried to find, I'm laughing now, but it's kind of sad, but I tried to search for that record deal again for like seven years, trying to be someone else that I wasn't, you know? You're going to hear more of Natalie's story later, particularly what happened in that year after she won Australian Idol. I was around a lot of famous journalists and people and newsmakers. And, you know, I just started checking it out and seeing how people were. Donna Rockwell is a clinical psychologist who specializes in fame and celebrity. But before that, she was a job. I'm trying to produce this high quality live stream and the bloody rehearsals for Australia Day tomorrow are just going on at the Sydney Opera House right now, interfering with this high quality stream. No respect for the life of the mind. Journalist working in Washington, part of a group of reporters who helped set up CNN. Donna saw people around her becoming famous and was fascinated by how the experience changed them. When she left journalism and went to retrain at university, she got her doctorate in the psychology of fame and celebrity. It is written up in the Journal of Phenomenological Psychology and it remains the only published peer-reviewed research on the actual experience of fame and celebrity. And I is that true? Is this really the only peer-reviewed academic paper on the experience of fame and celebrity? It's 17 years ago. So it really speaks to the fact that you can't access this population to interview them about what their experiences are. And since I was so connected, if you will, I was able to do the study. Donna's research examined the experience of being famous through interviews with 15 well-known American celebrities. They were at different stages in their careers and from a range of professions, but they all shared similar problems. An inability to trust people. Yeah, but how much of this is just unique to America, right? These are all American celebrities, right? America doesn't have the social trust and social cohesion of Australia or Japan or France or Germany, right? So it's more difficult to trust strangers in America. Anyway, also Australia is, America is much more of an individualist society than England, France, Germany, Australia, uh, China, Japan. So what role does that play? Why are you my friend? Is it because you like me or because I'm famous? So that was one thing, mistrust, not only of new friends, but old friends, of everyone actually. So you and I go out into the world and we see people and we have an equal relationship. But when a celebrity goes out into the world. Don Willis says, Luke, you really need to upgrade my bro. Okay, upgrade what? My, my technical live streaming? Is it the, the wind in the willows, the, the, the birds chirping, the, the rehearsals going on in the Sydney Opera House that is, you know, damaging this uh, live stream experience? World, there is no equal relationship. There's only the fan who's trying to get as much from the celebrity as they can, if you will. And it's called reflected glory. When we, as someone on the street, go up to a celebrity and we talk to them or we say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I see you. This is amazing. One person told me that people like to touch her. And then they would turn to their friend and say, I just touched Patty. You know, so what happens is the celebrity starts to feel like an object. So they lose their sense of trust in old friends and new friends. One of the research participants said, fame sits on the table between you like a bloated cod. And he says, you know, sometimes friends leave and you have to understand why they do because you're special and they're not. In fact, there is this has been problem with celebrities because you can't keep that bright light forever, right? So there is a dimming of the celebrity 
for the famous person. One person who was um, an R&B superstar is in my study told me that, you know, she's an older woman now. She walks down the street and people yell to her and they say, hey, I recognize you. Didn't you used to be? And they'll say her name. Yeah, people say that to me. Didn't you used to be Luke Ford? I'm still Luke Ford, bro. Still Luke Ford. And she says to herself, I'm still her. I may not be a celebrity anymore, but I didn't used to be me. I'm still me. Family issues, temptation, a whole slew of existential problems that come simply from fame. Yeah, people ask me, oh, do you still blog? Or do you still live stream? Right? I'm, I'm not getting the, the hundreds of live viewers that I used to, but yeah, I'm still toiling away. Celebrities can experience acquired narcissism, acquired situational narcissism because they're famous. This term, acquired situational narcissism. Yeah, I think this happened to me was first coined by Robert Millman when he was professor of psychiatry at Cornell Medical School and medical advisor to Major League Baseball. He defined it as a- Didn't you used to be Dick Dundee? <laughs> so yeah, I remember you know, people would treat me differently when I was a minor league celebrity, right? When I was on TV fairly regularly, people would treat me differently. And it probably predisposed me to, uh, what was it, situational narcissism? a person who exhibits narcissistic behavior after becoming successful or popular. So they start acting as though they are in a different category than everyone else. So they are used to all the incoming adulation, 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 coming in, coming in, coming in, and they forget how to go back out. Yes. Because neurologically, their brains change because there's so much incoming that they lose the even need to reach out. And that's why you see so many failed marriages. Yes. Yeah, like during my minor celebrity times, there was like so much attention incoming, so many people who wanted a part of me that, yeah, I did, I did kind of lose the habit of uh, reaching out to other people. Luke, you look like you were eating an oversized hammock. <laughs> Whatever happened to Kevin Michael Grace, he's, uh, he's still tweeting. He stopped live streaming for whatever reason. I, I think maybe the technological requirements of taking it outside of YouTube was beyond his comfort level. Last I heard, he was doing a weekly show with Dennis Dale. Um, I've invited Kevin back onto this show you know, a dozen times over the past two years, but uh, he is not interested. Happy children of celebrities. Fame becomes an addiction. We become addicted to that level of not only attention, but adulation. You're fabulous, you're fantastic, I love you, you're great, you're my favorite. They are so used to that. The brain of a celebrity gets addicted to that level of neurological stimulation. The excitation in the brain from being recognized is so exciting. And then if it's quiet, the brain, just like hungering for heroin, hungers for recognition, adulation, affirmation, am I still okay? And all the people I interviewed in my study, the celebrities have anonymity for confidentiality reasons. One person said, oh, please use my name. And that was child star Danny Bottaducci from the Partridge family in the States. And he said to me in the course of our interview, he said, I've been addicted to almost every substance known to mankind. 
and none are more addicting than fame. One of the questions that I asked as sort of a literary device was, when was the first moment you realized you were famous to each person? And so one person said, when I walked the first moment you realized you were famous to each So I experienced fame as like, oh, finally I've arrived. Like here, you know, I belong up here. Now, I, I am special, I do have these special gifts. I remember in second grade, we went as a class and sat on this bridge over Dora Creek in uh, Kurumbong, New South Wales, Australia, Avondale College. And uh, there were all these submerged logs in the, in the creek and we were told to describe them. And so I just jotted down a few words and then I became, oh no, I, I've done this assignment wrong. So in second grade, and then the teacher you know, read my piece and she was like really impressed more than any other piece that was written that day. And she read it aloud to the class and I could see the effect that my writing had on the adults. So at age eight, I realized that I could do extraordinary things with, with the written word. And then I could see my father who was able to do, you know, extraordinary things with, the, with the, both the written word and the spoken word. And so for me, I experienced fame as you know, kind of made all the pain and the frustration and the social dislocation and my inner turmoil, you know, go away for a little while. It just kind of quieted me down. I thought, ah, you know, now I'm up here where I belong. But it was, it was simply a narcotic that made, you know, what was wrong in my life just uh, subside for a while and uh, then you know all, all my problems just came uh, rushing back after the, the narcotic wore off each person and so one person said when I walked out of my apartment building someone looked at me and said hey aren't you that lady on TV and that's when she knew she was famous I interviewed an NFL hockey player and when did he first know he was famous when he was walking down the hall in high school so everybody has their first moment of realizing, oh my gosh, this has happened. The window for that feeling terrific is very short because people start feeling like a toy in a shop window, a Barbie doll, that guy on TV, a clay figure with all those eyeballs looking at you. Well, it depends what you do with it. If you're able to use it in, in a positive way. So I would use fame to maximize the number of people that I could interview. So I'm good at interviewing people. I was able to use my fame in part in a productive way and you know, something that would sustain me and bring benefit to other people. So it, it largely depends on what you do with the fame. If you can use it in a productive way, then it's gonna be good for you and good for others. You come to see they're actually looking through you. They're not looking at you at all. Anyone who has any involvement in show business or any taste of celebrity understands that there is a really sweet spot on this continuum. This is Australian singer-songwriter Ben Lee. And that is where you have access to what you want access to, but people aren't bothering you. I mean, that's the dream. The dream... Right, so uh, that's I had enough fame that I was able to have access to the people I wanted to have access to. What's my superhero origin story, bro? I gave it to you, all right? I was sitting on a bridge over Dora Creek and jotting down some words about the submerged ghostly logs in the creek. And I saw the effect that my words had on adults. 
and I realized then at age eight that I had some extraordinary skills with the word. It means that you get to like work with people you want to work with. You get to, I mean, even just socioeconomic access, you get to eat good quality food. You get to travel nicely. You get to stay in nice places, but no one wants people bothering them. I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's a, so sometimes in my set, I say this thing before I play Cigarettes Will Kill You about how I'm like, hey, this song came number two in the Triple J Hottest 100 to Pretty Fly for a White Guy by The Offspring. And the message to you here today, kids, is if you work really hard, you also can be number two. Number two is the dream. Everyone should want to be number two. Who wants to be number one? When you're number one... Okay, people think they can optimize fame. Like this bloke, he's just so sure that he can optimize fame. But uh, depends on circumstances. Sometimes you do want to be number one. And uh, different people are differently suited for different levels of fame. Right? Some people can very happily handle a much higher level of fame than other people. So there's no generalizable rule for the optimum amount of fame. One, everyone's looking at you, even at a level of subversion, like what you can do with culture. I suppose the first time I put it together that there were certain feelings of validation or excitement that you could get from performance was in first or second grade, like year one or two, my school put on a concert, it was a music. So the healthy person is able to validate himself when he does good things, right? The unhealthy person is, needs, you know, outside affirmation, but the healthy person is able to internally validate himself rather than depend on external validation. So fame is a bitch for some people, other people it's, you know, something valuable. Depends on the individual. Called Uncle Moishi and his mitzvah men. Uh, I went to a Jewish school, so it's a you know, Jewish themed story. And they made everyone stand up and just sing do re mi fa sol do, you know, just like every one in a go. And they went one at a time and literally every kid is like do re mi fa sol do, you know, tone deaf basically and then they went past me i never thought i could sing or anything but i went do re mi fa so la ti do and just sang a scale and i saw they made a note and i had this moment of realizing that whatever had happened in the room when i sang brought someone happiness and then brought me approval and i think in a lot of ways that magic combination set this so this happened to him in, I think, first or second grade. Then for me, in, in second grade too, I, I found that the way that I could use language could bring people happiness. So these were our super superhero origin stories. Scene for everything else I would do in my career, basically. Ben Lee got a record deal for his band Noise Addict when he was just 13. It was off the back of a four-track demo he made in his bedroom. Ben sent it round to labels and radio stations and managed to get signed. I mean, it's usually the first flushes of fame that are the most discombobulated. So I know a bloke who, before the rabbi gives, gives a sermon, he'll give it, the rabbi like three words to use or a phrase like 50 shades of gray. So the rabbi will get up and he'll talk about the Jews marching through Mount Sinai and how the, there was always a cloud hovering over them and the cloud had 50 shades of gray. It's like, yeah, he met this bloke's requirement. So this bloke gave me the, the assignment of using the word ostentatious in my next uh, internet talk.
So here I am. I'm not ostentatious. I'm just fair dinkum, mate. Regulating or disorientating. And it comes with an intense sense of drama because fame, when you're famous or experiencing some fame, it does feel like you're at the center of the world and all of the various problems or issues kind of revolve around you. And you generally have a lot of people treating you as if that's true also. <laughs> so it's very often just these first flushes of fame that I think are the most kind of, you know, just unnerving. It must feel good. So the, the chat says that the Israelites left Egypt as a mixed multitude. There were 50 shades of brown. That shirt is ostentatious. Well, I don't have a whole heck of a lot of uh, clothing choices. I only took a, a carry-on backpack. That's all I brought with me to Australia. All my other shirts are black. To stand above me while I make you so proud. If you think back to the cigarettes will kill you, you know, the sort of peak mainstream awareness of Ben Lee, if you like, what were the elements of that you really enjoyed? And what were some of the elements where you were like, oof? So I'm sure the experience of fame is very different in Australia than America and very different in Japan or China or Hong Kong or France, Germany, England. Right? There'll be some things that are common to the celebrity experience, but for example, in England, they have the British royal family. Right? Celebrity plays a role in the United States akin to what the, the royal family plays in England. So celebrity is a much bigger deal in an individualist uh, go for the gusto, be all you can be ethos like, like the United States of America compared to a more corporate country like Australia, France, Germany or, or Japan. The arias of 2005, whenever Awake is in your sleep, won the awards and Missy, like there was a moment culturally where like Missy Higgins' record has done well and mine had done well and they were both sort of acoustic pop records and between us we'd sort of scoop the arias and that was probably the biggest moment of, you know, you get in a cab and the cab driver wants to take a photo for their niece and that whole thing. It makes the after shows and stuff like, in some ways it's kind of really fun because you have people who want to hang out with you and like everyone wants to have a party, but it also is a bit limiting in terms of you can't just go everywhere and do anything. I do remember when I played the Commonwealth Games, the closing ceremony and did we're all in this together, like walking around Melbourne for that was just, it was just unpleasant. In Australia, basically being some level of celebrity for 20 odd of them or 22 of them i've just realized it's a thing that comes and goes and if you're on the telly there'll be a few days where you'll go to the airport and people will recognize you and then they'll forget a week later you know humans have this remarkable inability to imagine life beyond the moment that they're living in at that time and it's very hard for them to realize that the current moment they're in of celebrity is not going to last forever and it's actually that is guaranteed I was trying to a podcast here. Man, I can't have this, this music I've talked going to on. a lot of famous people over the course of my career so far, and, you know, people react to fame in such different ways. Michael Shulman writes celebrity profiles for The New Yorker. There are people who have been ready to be famous since they came out of the womb, mm -hmm. and they know exactly what to do as a famous person, but other people are completely thrown by it or are just uncomfortable with it. You know, I, I did a profile for The New Yorker of Adam Driver a few years ago. And he is someone who is just sort of palpably uncomfortable in the world in his own skin. I think that's what makes him interesting, both, both as a person and on screen. And when I spent time with him, you know, he was coming off, he was about to release the third Star Wars movie that he was in. And I could just tell that being recognized in the way that he was because of Star Wars made him so deeply uncomfortable. He talked about how 
he was in a Broadway show at the time, and people would gather at the stage door and like give him fan art, and they knew the name of his wife and their dog, and they would like make drawings of them together. Or they, you know, some people were jealous of his wife and hated her, and you know, I think that level of attention that came with Star Wars was more than he bargained for. He was palpably uncomfortable with it. Here's Michael reading from his piece on Adam Driver. During Girls, strangers would often share details about their sex lives with him. One guy stopped him in the subway and said, I love that scene where you pee on her in the shower, then turned to his girlfriend and said fondly, I pee on her all the time. But Star Wars has made him uncomfortably famous. And then he says, this one woman who has been harassing my wife. So another variable here is what are you famous for? What you're famous for is going to have you know a profound effect on how people relate to you. You know, I became famous for you know breaking news stories and for, for doing interviews and for you know my coverage of forbidden worlds. So that resorted in a lot of you know journalists and authors and professors uh, reaching out to me. I like very different than say winning Australian Idol, different crowd came to the show and gave me a creepy wood carving that she made of my dog he said okay so it's funny that, that in itself is funny like that you see what kind of fame how fame changes from like girls famous you're on like a weird hbo show to star wars famous where yeah. there's people making sculptures of your dog mm. what, the crazy thing about that though is that he just kind of said that to me right if you become famous for for journalism or for interviewing people or for breaking stories i think you're much less likely uh to you know get people making uh, pictures of, of your dog. And I didn't think much of it, put it in the story. But after the story came out, it turned out that this fan who had made this artwork of his dog was like a known person in the Adam Driver fan community. Oh. And like it exploded on Reddit that my story mentioned her and she felt targeted. She felt like, why is Adam Driver, you know, oh. making fun of me? You know, it was just this whole crazy little world. She did the sculpture of Adam Driver's dog, you know, unsolicited. And then she's wondering why, you know, Adam Driver targeted her. You know, people never think, hey, what did I do to uh, you know, bring on this unwanted attention? You know, am I responsible at all for this situation? For, you know, this unwanted attention that I'm getting? No, people don't want to look at their own role and their own misery. Of Adam Driver's super fans that I kind of fell into. Personally, I feel like if you're making art of someone's pet that is sort of crossing a, a line of, of comfort you so i noticed that uh that during particularly needy time in my life you know i wanted to attach myself to someone successful like like dennis prager kind of bask in you know the, the reflected glory of having you know some attachment to this you know famous successful man so if you are you know fame focused like if you are you know very intent on developing your celebrity you're going to attract you know similarly troubled people such as myself you know as opposed to someone who's just you know primarily focused on doing good work they're going to attract a different type of fan you can understand why you might rue that sort of that level of, of fame social media has had a big impact on celebrity. For one, it's allowed famous people to have direct access to their fans. Here's clinical psychologist Donna Rockwell. There's another way besides the paparazzi to connect with your fan base, and it's directly. Social media has had a big effect to those who choose to let it have a big effect, but people who aren't on social media, it's not having such a big effect. 
It's not like there are all these big impersonal forces and the individual's absolutely helpless in, in the face of, you know, big impersonal forces like social media. Right? Social media is in your life to the extent that you choose and allow it to be in your life. DM me. <laughs> and so there is like this direct connection and a lot of celebrities like that because they've gotten rid of the middleman. On the other hand, I mean, what I'm so, I don't want to say afraid of, but think is so dangerous is the level of snark. How people think they just have the right to tear another person down, just. All right, that's going to depend on how stable you are and how much you read the things that people say about you and how needy you are for external validation of yourself, right? That'll make you more or less vulnerable to this uh, snark because they're a celebrity and this is my opinion on this person and that person and the other one and like oh she's horrible and celebrities read this stuff and guess what they are they're human beings one person i interviewed and this was 17 years ago so before social media really became embedded could not even read her email anymore she couldn't look at twitter anymore because the attacks were so personal with such vitriol that it broke her celebrities are human beings their feelings get hurt just like ours do even before Natalie Gauchy was announced as the winner of Australian Idol, she started getting exposed to feedback from fans. A lot of it was really positive, but there was a lot of difficult stuff as well. YouTube was out and people could write comments on our videos and things like that. So I had to stop reading the comments because I did get a lot. Okay, so some people are going to be more vulnerable to that than other people, depending on how secure they are in themselves, how much ability they have to you know, self-validate as opposed to relying on external validation. So it's not like there are all these big impersonal forces and the individual just has no control over them. A lot of hate, as much as I got a lot of love, I got a lot of hate as well. And it was really hard to read those comments because people can be very mean. So yeah, I had to stop reading them. It's like, well, I'm a human being on the outside. Ben Lee agrees social media can be brutal, but he also says it's an unavoidable part of putting creative work out into the world. Is social media dangerous in that sense to like the emotional well-being of an artist? Absolutely. But so was the casting couch in movies and like, it's like the world of all these things are dangerous to the extent that you allow them to be dangerous, right? To the extent that you allow other people to manipulate, abuse you, they will manipulate and abuse you. Right? If you're good at protecting yourself and you're not looking to strangers to validate yourself, then you're going to be much less vulnerable to this. Being a creator in a capitalist society and in a sort of patriarchal power structure is an innately rebellious and treacherous path to try and take so yeah it's it's scary and it's hard and you've got to learn to take your hits what's really complicated about it is that it is both unfair the amount of like i understand the idea that it's unfair the amount of just the brutalization of creative people that could happen on the internet who are often very sensitive people just trying to share their work and you know they can be often like romantic dreamers you know but on the other side, I also think the slings and arrows of culture coming at you in whatever form they take in your generation is actually what ultimately is how you prove yourself and how you become great. And whether that's Bob Dylan having to face journalists for Time magazine in the 60s or, you know, Doja Cat being on TikTok, it's, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a sensitive, creative person saying, I will, I will speak out. I'm not going to keep my work hidden away in my room. I'm going to bring it into the marketplace. I'm going to bring it into the conversation and I'm going to deal with the consequences of that.
in 2007, Australian Idol was a really popular TV show. And after 11 weeks competing, Natalie was already pretty famous. But then winning and what followed was a whole nother deal. It was all just systems go. There was no time to think. There was no time to really celebrate. At the time, I, you know, it was my 26th birthday on that night. I knew that I had like 67 interviews the next day, but I still partied all night and did the interviews with basically no sleep. I had to record an album after that. And then we went on tour. So we went on tour for about 20 days after that nationally. I think for that time, for the first maybe six months, I just had to keep on going in that bubble and but I was out of the bubble. So it was a little bit confusing for me. I wasn't really sure where my support was, where my foundations lie where I was going to live, where I was going to go. Like, I hadn't planned any of that. So there was a lot of pressure for me to just be where I needed to be at the time I needed to be, because that was my role as a winner. Okay, but she wasn't just uh, hapless and hopeless here. You know, she had a role to play. Right? She could have said no. And in her 20s, the pain was still largely hidden. Winning Australian Idol and becoming famous brought it all forward and was ultimately why she abandoned her record deal. It took another seven years and the birth of her son before she was able to properly heal. And so it all started to reveal itself after I won Australian Idol. And I was you know, recording my second album and I went to America. I just turned into a really different person and I just sabotaged my next opportunity that I had with Sony and... So I haven't received a lot of really weird uh, fan letters maybe a moderate amount, or maybe I just delete them and forget them. I don't fixate on them. So, you know, I've met some weird people, but generally speaking, the people who respond to my work are really good people that I find it's an absolute pleasure to hang out with and talk to. During Australian Idol, there was so much pressure, and I worked really well under that pressure. It was when the pressure stopped that I didn't know what to do. I had time to think. I had time to feel. And that's when things went downwards for me. And I felt like I'd failed my whole fans. I'd failed Australia. Like, it was actually quite bad. And I, I left Australia for a long time to try and find... Okay, that, that though had nothing to do with Australia, right? That was her own irrational thinking, right? Until she learns to, to think in a more rational and productive fashion, right? She's going to get in trouble with that kind of crazy thinking. Myself and find out... I really was. In Donna Rockwell's study on the experience of being a celebrity, she identified four phases of fame. The first phase is love-hate. They love, finally, I'm getting acknowledged. But then it gets creepy, and then they hate it. So there's a love-hate phase. Then there's an addiction phase. Then there's like, I may not like this, but for some reason I can't live without it. Needing to go out just to be seen happens to some people, as well as the opposite of having to disguise yourself because you can't take being seen. The third phase is... Ex so Australia has this kind of poor poppy syndrome where, you know, you, you're discouraged from standing out. And so the experience of fame is going to be very different in a society like Australia compared to the United States. So all the interview subjects of this paper were American. Acceptance and finally adaptation. What I found the one thing that does help is knowing that you are part of something larger than yourself. So you see the people that do well with this kind of addiction, they give back. If you can do things that use fame as currency, 
so that you're using it for something useful in this world, not just another house with another swimming pool with another Fendi purse, but actually using famous currency to make a difference in the world. So that can help that addiction phase. The third phase is acceptance. Hey, this is where I am. I have to figure this out. Um, this is uncomfortable. I can't make any sense of it, but I have to accept it. I'm a talented pianist. What else am I going to do? I'm a rock and roll star. I can't hide. So I have to accept this. And then the fourth and final stage is adaptation in this way of realizing that famous currency. And you're part of something larger than yourself. You can leave this world a better place than you found it. You know, I've had friends that you lose touch with. You know, you might have some friends who they're musicians or they're actors and then they become famous musicians or famous actors and there's a five-year period where you lose touch and then five years later you like reconnect and they're like hey it's been a while uh i'm normal now they're yeah, cool right on you know because it's like i also have a certain sense of empathy or compassion for people who want to take that journey and who want to know what celebrity is like get in there man find out dance with it that's singer-songwriter ben lee you also heard from 2007 australian Right, so it all depends on how you use the fame, right? If, if you're using the fame to do something positive, right? And if you're famous for doing something positive, right? if you're out there you know, making your community a better place, if you're a blessing to other people and you become famous for your positive contributions, you're going you're gonna to attract a very different crowd. Okay, that's it for now. I'm going to say bye-bye.